A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the True Detective Podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to the weirdness of the long night. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our coverage for Season 4, Episode 2 of True Detective Night Country on HBO Max. We're going to start off with our spoiler-free hot takes, and then after a quick break, we will get into a a full scene-by-scene breakdown of the episode. We've got press screeners this season, so we are posting these podcasts right after the episodes have aired every Sunday night at 10 p.m. E.T., However, we want to enjoy the mystery of the show along with everyone else, so we're only recording one episode ahead. We're usually recording on Wednesday nights. This means you can send in your feedback each week. Send in your emails to truedetective at thelorehounds.com or head over to the contact page on our website and use the form or record us a voicemail. Also, join us on our Discord where we've got a full channel set up to discuss just True Detective. Links for all of that stuff is in the show notes. Check us out on Patreon if you want. Subscribers get early and ad-free access to our podcast, but also for True Detective especially, you get a customized detective's notebook that David has come up with. Everyone who sees it is blown away by it. So I'm (laughs) telling you, you want to see this thing. It's really cool. It's interactive. I could see this being officially from HBO. It's that good. It's kind of fun. I'm I'm nerding out. (laughs) I I could tell. I could tell. Well, if uh, you want some more information about our Patreon or our upcoming programming schedule, check us out at the end of the podcast. We push all that stuff to the back so we can get right to the episode. Cool. David, what did you think about this episode before we head into spoiler territory? Uh, I'm kind of, as I was structuring my feedback this week, uh, it ended up being sort of in two camps. There's the production stuff that's going on with this season, and then there's the story stuff that's going on with this season. Mm-hmm. So on the production side of things for episode two, I really appreciated the fact that they just moved us right along. You know, they they just pushed sure. everything forward on all fronts. We're moving out. We've got a couple of mainline new characters. We've got um, deepening of the mysteries. We've got answers to some questions that are posing uh, questions to more answers that we don't have. So I really felt that certain key details were paid off and that was really good. So that feels satisfying as a viewer, just like, hey, we're moving like there's there's progress here. Uh, I'm really impressed by the efficiency of the storytelling overall, the world building, 
the way that they trust the audience to just get it. Like we don't need a POV character that's walking around when they walk in someplace and then somebody says to them, well, the thing you need to know about Detective Danvers is blah, blah, right. blah, 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 blah. Right? No, it's like right. we're right in the middle of these relationships. We're right in the middle of the stakes of these relationships. And they trust the the Lisa, uh, Isa Lopez trusts us enough to just get it. We're, we're all human being enough to understand, oh, those two people have beef, <laughs> right? Or, right, uh, you know, sure. those two, you know, there's something going on over there, you know. So I, I really appreciate that when a show can can treat us like adults, <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think they're doing a really good job uh, in making a world feel like what I imagine Alaska to be like. The, okay. The yeah. shops, the the buildings. I guess they filmed this in Iceland, and there's a interview with uh, Isa Lopez talking about how uh, Iceland was just more set up because there's a lot more film industry happening in Iceland on a regular. basis. Oh, interesting. So they were able just to pick up and go and start filming. Um, and uh, but anyway, it, it feels like a like I imagine Alaska would feel like, and it, that's really that can be a really hard thing to pull off. And so I, I just really appreciating all, all of that production detail. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is similar to, you know, you and I have both lived in New York City for a, a significant periods of our lives. Yeah. I wonder how, how similar it is to like, well, they got New York right if you've been to New York a couple <laughs> exactly. times. Right? Exactly. Right? It's, yeah. it's uh, yeah. There was one show a while back where there was a character that was slow walking around New York City. And I was like, nope, not it. <laughs> Moving on. This show is – it was the one yeah. about those audio tapes. The guy was doing the audio tape mystery thing. It was kind of one of those uh, – Okay, I don't know. Things. I can't remember sure. now. But anyway, uh, uh, and I've lived uh, overseas and I've lived in remote areas. And so I got the authentic uh, authenticity uh, of the vibes that they're laying down in, in just a general sense. So I, I just really appreciated that. I think the casting is working well. Jodie Foster is just a beast. Um, Callie Reese is is amazing. I can't believe that this is like a her first big show like this. Yeah, yeah, good for her. Yeah, uh, John Hawks is amazing uh, as Pryor. Uh, his his well his in show or I'm sorry not I, I'm not thinking about his uh, in show son, but I was thinking about Fiona Shaw. She's great. She brings a lot of gravity. Eccleston, right? You know, he's showing up. Ec- so. Eccleston, I did not recognize for not at all many scenes. Not at all. Because he's just so different from how we're used to seeing him. And there's one scene in this episode with um, Hawks and Bennett. That's Finn Bennett is is the guy who's, who plays Pryor, the younger Pryor. There's a scene in this. The Pryor Pryor. No, the prior sorry. priors. The, the, sorry, actually, it's the latter far, prior. Okay, all right. Go on. <laughs> the younger on. and the, yeah. The, um, there's the a Holy scene. <laughs> there's a scene that is so emotionally loaded in this between those two characters. And the acting was phenomenal. Just blew my socks off. I was like, wow, these guys are bringing it. <clears throat> and so I, I just I'm really impressed across the board. The time dilation with it being the long night and what is day and what is night, you know, like you walk into a cafe and a bunch of people are sitting around and you wait, you're like, is this lunch or is this after work drinks? (laughs) I don't know what's going on here. And so it really has a nice disorienting effect on the the whole uh, development of, of the plot. 
I love how the music is being used, especially the diagenic music. That's music that you hear in world. So if somebody's listening to the radio in their truck or something like that, and then we pan back out and it changes quality and it now becomes the ambient background music and we come in and out both yeah, directions. Yeah, I, I love when they do that. Yep. It's amazing. And I've heard some interviews with Issa Lopez. She sounds amazing. She's so confident and so clear of her vision. So I feel like we're in really good hands from that production side of thing. Like really well thought out story. Lots of great Easter eggs. Lots of connective connectivity to things. It's a whole world, and it's being this—it's just being confidently presented. So that's great. On the story side of things, it's really interesting to be in the position that we're in, where we're just a little bit ahead of everybody else. So watching and listening to all the theories that are being crafted and the different lines of inquiry that the hive mind is going down. Uh, and it's really hard to bite my tongue, but it's also, I'm like really excited because I can't wait for people to see certain things or like, I've seen a couple of times where people are spot on about something and I just want to shout, yes, you got it right. <laughs> but I, you know, we, we can't. Uh, it would <laughs> right. be rude even if it were legally allowed, right? I wouldn't want to do that right, right. anyway. But it's interesting to see the theories that are out there. There's some good ones. There's some not so great ones. Um, I think with the density of the storytelling, there's a lot more story ahead of us. So even all of these theories, people, oh, I've cracked the, the code. I know exactly what's going to happen in the story. You may have a tale of it or you may have a piece of it, but I think there's a lot more yet for us to discover. And I think Issa Lopez is a much more crafty storyteller. So I don't yep, think what's yep. apparent for us on the front is is going to be so simplistic on the on the backside. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll say I I think that I think you're absolutely right there. I think that this story has legs where it could you know, you could find out the killer of the original group in the next episode. I don't know. I haven't watched it yet, so trust me, I'm not right. spoiling right now. But we could find this out in episode 3 and there could still be story after that. So I think I think that would be really cool if they, like I say, I've, I've been saying this in every podcast we're doing about this. This is the second one. I've been saying this in our podcast about <laughs> this. Um, I like when a mystery box show gives you little wins yes, so that exactly. the bigger wins feel earned. Yeah. 100%. And I hope that they do that in this season. And it feels like after episode two, I feel like that. I agree. I agree. I was telling you that I was I was much happier with this episode than the last episode. Yes. <laughs> a lot of world building in one to, to on Rampus, but but she's now confidently moving us forward. And and that said, it feels like there's sort of three major lines of uh, inquiry that the hive mind has um, seems to be aggregating around. And so we'll talk about those in the scene by scene breakdown, but it feels like there's some good theories out there and, and we'll try to reflect those from what we're picking up from the other podcasts and the reddits and all and the discords and all that stuff. Um, there are also in this episode, major, major tiebacks to season one, huge things that are directly connected. Now the question will be, are these determinative, determinative, can I say that word? Sure. Um, you could or, try. Uh, I did, and I think I failed. Um, or are they just Easter eggs? And are they just some, ha you know, the the showrunners and HBO having a little fun and, and extending a little branding, uh, you know, weaving it in a little bit? Uh, but we'll talk about them when we get there. But they are major hooks, and uh, I don't. I'm I'm so far I don't feel put off by any of them. They they seem to be reasonably appropriate. Cool. What about you? 
I thought it was great. I thought that it was, you know, the first episode, I think I expressed to you, I'm I'm a little nervous that the show isn't for me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of I don't usually pick up shows like this. This is not really my jam usually. Uh, and I was a little bit put off by jam the excessive. On your sure. I was a little <laughs> bit uh, put off by the excessive world building of right. episode one. And I, I still think that, that it was a little bit clumsy. I still think that episode one was not superb. Although a lot of people loved it a lot more than me. So again, could just not be my kind of show. But then episode two came and I said, I think this is my kind of show. Because... I, I said this to you on the on the Discord, and I said, write that down because I got to say it on the air, which is you got to take a lesson. Yeah, it's here. <laughs> I've got an eye for you. You know what? I'm sorry, but it's from this episode. It's one line. You got to take a lesson from Danvers and ask the right questions. And I think the problem with episode one uh, is that it made the show was making me ask the wrong questions. It was making me mm. ask what it was making me ask. What is happening? Interesting. What is this person doing? Right. What did this, you know, what happened here? What, where is this? You know, all these, all these factual questions. What a good mystery box makes you do is ask why. Mm -hmm. And that is what this episode made me do. This episode gave me a lot of factual answers and not a lot of reasoning answers, not a lot of, a lot of analytical answers. And that's what I want to be curious about, not, well, what, what factually happened. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I'm really glad that this episode did a much better job of that. I thought that, you know, they they had a great pacing mm-hmm. where things were answered, more questions were raised, where different characters felt like they had a minute to shine instead of just jumping, jumping, jumping from right. one to another. We're uh, deepening I'm, some of the relationships. We're getting more into right. the dynamics. Right. Even when they, uh, you know, showed a new character. Right. I didn't feel like it took away from the other characters that we've already met. I thought that it sort of added to the dynamic rather than subtracted. It was additive. It was greater than the sum of its parts, if you will. Right. So overall, I'm I'm really really pleased with this episode. And the the ending just was a punch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was was amazing. Yeah. It really braced me, and I was it it, it answered and opened up like we were like we've been talking about. It just. It, it collapsed down a whole bunch of things, and then suddenly the world became much bigger than we could have possibly imagined. Yep. And that's yep. a really great hallmark of noir style. I mean, I know noir has got some different meanings, and I, I probably talked about this before. But the this idea that, well, there's a, there's a, a literature genre called hard-boiled, right? And that's where... Typically a lawman, you know, or, or police officers, law enforcement, whatever, or, or the main character... They know this world. They know how to deal with this world. They can punch as hard as anybody can punch them, right? They can punch back as hard as anybody can punch them. Mm-hmm. And they understand the stakes and they understand um, uh, how things operate. In noir, one of the elements of noir is that our, the protagonist encounters a world beyond them that they didn't understand or see or were unaware of. And suddenly they don't have the rules to the game anymore. They're playing a different game and they don't know what that game is. And so that's part of the exploration is, is learning, you know, how this world works and what really has gone on. And so it, it just gave me chills. The end of this episode gave me chills because it did just that. 
it took the world and we were like, oh, we can understand this world. Great. It's, it's all working out. And then it flipped it inside out like some weird origami art thing. And it suddenly became an entirely different thing. And, yeah. and that was exciting and exhilarating. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm done monologuing. Cool. <laughs> we are 15 minutes into this podcast and we've yet to go into the actual episode. So Let's I think it's it. time we do that. Why don't we take a quick break? When we get back, we'll go into full spoiler territory. And we're back. David, what do we have to talk about before we talk about this episode? Uh, just two things really quick. I wanted to make a mention that I am listening to a lot of the other podcasts that are out there. A lot of people are covering this. There's a couple of good ones on The Ringer, Bald Move, Post Show Recaps, Vanity Fair. Everybody's got you know coverage on this thing. So I'm listening to a lot of those. I'm also listening to the official podcast, and um, that ha- they have a host, Alice uh, I'm going to pronounce her middle name cor- incorrectly. Uh, Conic, I think it is, is how it's pronounced. Glenn. And she's a member of the Alaskan indigenous uh, community and is a podcaster already. So I just want to highlight the fact that HBO did the right work. They went out, they found somebody who's qualified in both culturally and um, from a, a perspective and a point of view, as well as a professional podcaster and brought them in to be the co-host or the, the main host of the, of the HBO official podcast. So if you're into the background material and stuff, it's great. Go check it out. It's really well produced, but I'll be keeping all of that stuff in the back of my head and just dropping little things here or there, making sure that we reference when we are picking up clues from other different sources. But uh, I think that's about it. Otherwise, I think we can get into the scene by scene now. Very cool. Okay. All right. Bring us in, David. So we start with the cold open. This is an, uh, this episode is about an hour and two minutes long. And uh, I think all of these are directed by Isa Lopez herself. And that's certainly written by her. So, and it's cold. <laughs> you know, it's a cold open. Danvers and Young Pryor examine the bodies in the ice. And Liz gets real with her staff. Navarro and Rose talk and... Angie asserts that the scientist bodies are tied to the Annie K case. Navarro stumbles on the folded clothing of the missing men. Not all of the frozen men are dead. Mm. <laughs> this was terrifying. I don't know what you thought at the end yeah. of the scene. I, it freaked me the hell out. That freaked me out too. I was like, ah, I was, I was actually feeding my son. So my mm-hmm. son was <laughs> asleep in my arms. Dramatized him. He's, he's, he's a baby. And he's and he's uh, if you're new here, I have a baby and he is uh, asleep in my arms and I jump when I'm watching it. I have my head to the side. Oh, no. Sleep on me. And I like jump for a second. And he, he didn't wake up or anything. But I was oh, like, good. oh, man. Oh, man. That could have that could have gone bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, it you know, what it reminds me of is the thing. And, and Issa Lopez is uh, on record saying that. Aliens and The Thing and a number of other uh, shows, TV and, and movie shows, are insp- serve as inspiration for her. So if you haven't seen The Thing, this definitely feels like something out of The Thing for me. And there was even the little Easter egg in, in episode one where The Thing video cassette was in a couple of shots. Well, so. the thing is, I'm glad I was wearing headphones when I, <laughs> when uh, <you> when I watched this. <laughs> 
And uh, it was a really great needle drop too, because we went from the scream straight into the Billie Eilish song. And it, it really, you know, I've talked about this before, especially when we were covering Andor back in the day, where you can use the energy coming out of one scene to push you forward into another scene. Yeah. And so yeah. Ha- having that sh- scream uh, meld with the song and, ki- and just needle drop us straight into the opening um, really does a lot of that vibe work for us. I think it's really good. Cool. Um, so the, we see the spiral on the forehead. Yes. Right. So that's, which, that's, which is connected later with the Annie K thing, right? Yeah, exactly. With the tattoo and the thing on the ceiling. And of course that all goes back to season one, uh, the, the spiral in, in season one as a symbol for nefarious things happening. I don't, we're not going to um, get into the plot details of, of, um, of season one, but we'll just reference them. So people who know, know. Okay. I buy it. Uh, I interesting too, uh, about all of the stuff that's going on with the corpsicle. I believe that's what it's officially called. That's what Danvers calls it. The corpsicle. And I, I'm um, in, I'm in. That's, that's a good name for it. As good a name as any. That's right. I believe Isa Lopez actually coined that or somebody on set coined it and then it carried over and then became part of the script. I believe that's the right, I could be <laughs> wrong. Funny. I think that's right. Uh, but about burnt corneas, ruptured eardrums, obviously they're shrieking in, in horror, you know, they're sort of recoiling from something. So a really strange scene. And, uh, I heard Joanna Robinson on the prestige podcast on the ringer, uh, use a reference, uh, Haran, Haram, I cannot say it now. Bosch. <laughs> Can you, do you know who I'm talking about? No, Haram not at all. Bosch? Oh God. So. Yeah, you have to look up. Um, even if you misspell it, it should find you right on Google. Uh, a style of painting, a style of art from, it's not medieval, but I'm not sure the time period, but these really fantastical drawings of hell and torture and, and crazy stuff. And so a lot of people are comparing the um, corpsicle to drawings and paintings from from H. Bosch. <laughs> I'll say it that way. Nice. Nice. Um. The folded clothing you bring up, yes, in your in your outline here, I see. Um, I I don't know what it is, but I think we kind of get a hint by the end of it, right? Because we have another person who has escaped. We know yes. by the end of this, right? Or perhaps committed these atrocities. And what's weird and interesting is, I think Navarro says later that it's not even there, or or maybe it was Danvers. Um, we'll get to that scene. That it's not even doesn't even seem to be like their clothes, or it's not a complete set of clothing for all of them. Right? Yeah, they're missing some of the clothing. So I yeah. guess could some of it still be on them at all? Under well, we ice? don't. We don't. Yeah, not until they completely melt the whole thing. Will we know? Because we don't see any at this stage, and in, even as it's melting, we don't see any. Tell you what, I think that the extra guy folded the clothes and then said, wait, I don't have any clothes. Took one piece from each person and said, all right, I'm good. I got an outfit now. Two shoes, pants, uh, you know, shirt, hat. I'm good. (laughs) All right. So we drop from this scene straight into the opening credits. And uh, from what I hear in the ether is that this opening credit sequence has a ton of clues embedded in it. And I've yet to do a frame by frame analysis of it. I was kind of waiting for the Reddit detectives to, to do that. But apparently that if you, 
you know, maybe it's the kind of thing where you just watch the opening credit every time. And, yeah, yeah. you know, in that with that repetition, we'll start to pick up more and more of the clues or we'll see certain scenes that have been filmed or stuff like that. So, yeah, Westworld kind of had that, too. And I mm-hmm. liked that. Totally. But also, like, I don't want to figure it out before we get there because mm-hmm. I want to be surprised. So I kind of don't want to do a microanalysis. I do think that, th- you know, this show is designed to be inspected under a microscope. Totally. But sometimes you can go too far down the magnifying lens and kind of ruin it for yourself and then you find a markley well i think (laughs) it's not even that i think i think the way you ruin the show for yourself is if you get so convinced of one theory and then it's a different thing just don't be convinced of one theory just just be open to change that's how you keep yourself sane on the show like this absolutely a theory is a theory until it's until you start it to amass data points and actually can can rely on it otherwise you Mm -hmm. just gotta yeah you gotta be loose with them right they're just fun we're yeah. just trying on different clothes in the mirror. Oh, how does this fit? How does that fit? Right. Yeah. Right. All right. So we get two combined scenes um, that are intertwined with each other. So the first up is uh, Danvers and uh, the school teacher Bryce. So Danvers talks on the phone with a nurse about the status of the living guy. And then she walks into a class at the local high school where she dismisses the students so that she can talk to Bryce, the local geology teacher, about what the Salal Research Station was up to. So interesting, you know, they say on the the phone call with the nurse that they're going to have to amputate the leg and the, the guy is in an induced coma. Yeah. That's pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, he was a corpsicle and now he's alive. Yeah. So yeah. Please keep me in an induced coma. <laughs> that that's wow. Fine. Yeah. Um, as far as the way that she's reacted to when she mm-hmm. walks into a room, have we ever seen anyone pleased to see Liz Danvers? Mm, not yet. No. <laughs> even, not by a long shot. Even young Pryor, I think he admires her, mm-hmm. but I think he's exhausted by her. Hmm. And we definitely get some of that a little bit later. Do you know? He's trying to stay in her good graces. Yeah. Did you ever watch Parks and Rec? I can never remember. No, I was never really a Parks and Rec person. There was this whole thing about, you know, Leslie Note being a steamroller and her friends all love her because she's so sweet and she'd do anything for them. But she is a steamroller and she like Mm -hmm. drags people into anything that she's doing. I feel like Danvers is that without the sweetness. (laughs) Danvers wouldn't do anything for you. No sweetener in that cup of coffee. Absolutely not. Danvers will steamroll you, but if you need your driveway shoveled, she's not coming. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> nope. She's the chief. And uh, yeah, it's a good thing that she's in charge because otherwise she would have a rough go of it with uh, having a boss above her that she's and not you know, in a relationship with. <laughs> right. But I think that I think the point is, you know, they, they say a bunch of times, well, I give you a promotion. Right. He says that. I think what he did was, and I could be wrong, but I think what Christopher Eccleston's character did is he put her in charge of people because he knew that she cannot work under somebody. Mm. And he's mm-hmm. still, and she's still finding a way to kind of work under him. Right. And undermine him, even though they're in different departments now. I've got some additional thoughts when we, when we get to that scene, we can, we can break that relationship down a little bit more because there is a lot going on there. That, yeah. That's pretty interesting. And and not unlike Eccleston, uh, she 
obviously uh, consumed Bryce pretty well. I mean, this guy seems like a pretty, you know, he's a, you know, the, the, the stereotypical frustrated high school teacher, right? Yep. But she walks into the room and he's recoiling in fear. Not fear. That's maybe that's not the right way to say it, but he's like, Oh my God, what are you doing here? I think dread. That's dread it. Is that's the, a, uh, better. Is the word. Yeah. She consumed him at some point. She just like sucked his soul. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And she was so mean to him. She like, what does she call him? A dirk, a, a dork or a nerd or something like that. And she's yeah. like, <laughs> speak yeah. English nerd or something. Yeah. I, I just, um, yeah. yeah. Why don't you, why don't you go to the English teacher? Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> that's rough. That is rough. So, yeah. So we learn a little bit more about Salal. They were madmen, reclusive. They didn't come to town. No visitors didn't rotate staff. So that sort of lends cre- credibility to the question of what was Salal doing out there. And they seem to be a secretive group and they're not a normal research station that would rotate staff and scientists um, out on a regular basis. And uh, we also get the the drop that it's decades of work, about 18 years of sequencing DNA of a microorganism that could potentially stop cellular decay, among other things. So this is one of the major lines of inquiry that the Reddit detectives are are working on, which is, you know, did one of these ice core samples or the organism that they were working on, um, you know, get out? Is it doing something? Is is that is it spreading? Right. There's a whole. We've got some uh, great feedback when we get to the feedback section uh, on this theory as well. Uh, so it ties in nicely with. Um, all of our uh, uh, pandemic-related topics, like The Last of Us and other shows. Yeah, yeah. So I could see them awakening that in the ice. Um, but my question is: is this is this the part where they say like that was never going to work because the friction from drilling would yes. get rid of? Yeah. So or in their was... cellular disruption, like the 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 DNA gets ruptured by the ice right. as well. But yeah, he Which also talks sense. about the mechanics of the drilling as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I buy it. Um, I, that's the part that made me start thinking of The Last of Us. Okay, is, right. Uh, yeah. Also, I at a certain point, I'm waiting for Christopher Eccleston to uh, put on a leather jacket and whip out a sonic screwdriver and be like, "Stop <laughs> drilling into the earth! You're going to cause a problem. There's aliens down there." He's put on putting on his Northern English accent, and he's back as the doctor. Exactly. Perfect. The great way to end the sequel, the, the, the season. The, <laughs> that's the, the twist. Would I just solved exactly. It. You did. <laughs> All right, so this scene was then sort of combined and intertwined with uh, Angie and Rose talking about the last time Rose saw Travis alive and about the nature of the dead. Uh, And all of this is set to Song to the Siren, take seven by Tim Buckley, which is playing in the background at Rose's house. It's both diegetic and uh, contextual, or I forget what they call the other non-diegetic music. Whatever so, you want to call it, I don't think there is a word. No, I'm just yeah, kidding, but um, I don't know if there's a term. Yeah, there there must be, but no, I think there. I maybe embedded. Mm. Maybe one day we'll know. Maybe the maybe the internet's will tell us. So yeah, right in. What did you think of this scene? Because there's a couple of there's some big stuff happening here, but it's all very subtle. Um, the. Travis being dead and being alive and being all around 
that's so spooky to me and uh-huh. that is one of the things that most interests interests me about this season so far like sure i want to know how the people died in the in the corpsicle but i don't know i'm kind of more interested in rose and travis so far uh-huh uh, did you pick up on any of the details of Travis himself? Did any of those details stick? Um, not really, but I see that you have it uh, <laughs> in the uh, outline right here as a major <laughs> season one connection. Yeah. So this is pretty big confirmation to me that Travis is um, uh, Rust Cole's father. So the main Matthew McConaughey's character from. Uh, season one. I'm pretty sure we're pretty sure I am pretty sure uh, I haven't talked to anybody else about this there yet, but this is Travis's father. And there's been a bunch of internet um, uh, sleuthing going on, uh, possibly connecting. I, I missed it, but apparently the the name Travis was mentioned in, in season one. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So this is straight up. It fits all of the biographical and, and time scale details. So I think we can just leave it at that and, and let um let everyone else uh, enjoy it uh, unfolding if you don't already know, or if you do know, go back and, you know, binge watch season one again, you know, uh, for the 50th time. But yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty big connection here. Cool. Um, interesting that the Rose and Travis were uh, just buddies, you know, uh, of various types. They were, you know, close friends, but not married. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that sort of tracks, it feels, it feels all right. I also love the, big picture window that they're sitting in front of. And there's this black night out there with this swirling snow. And so it felt very much like a starscape yeah. looking out into the blackness and to the cosmic horror of it all. You know, the, the, the vast unknown where we're infinitesimal and, and uh, in, in the face of this giant cosmic existence. Yeah. I think, You've you've highlighted in the outline here too, but the nature of the dead conversation is really yes. the highlight of this scene, and it's one it one really of the is. better, I would say, monologues or lines of dialogue in this episode. Which was it felt so ominous, and it felt like it's going to be a set of rules for this world now. Agreed, agreed. But it also felt like this came up naturally in conversation. Mm-hmm. Which is why I loved it so much. Because again, the first one, you're telling me what? This is telling me why. The motivations of the dead. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. Right. As cool as Ennis. (laughs) Where the fabric is tearing. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have the three kinds of dead. And I I 100% agree. This is is a central mechanism of this plot. And I think it's it's really important that we hold on to these. The ones who miss you, the ones who need to tell you something you need to hear, and the ones that want to take them with you. And I'm just getting chills even just (laughs) – maybe I should turn on the heat in my office. Um, uh, But it's just like, oh, it's so tightly delivered and so part of the conversation. It's just – and and to have Fiona Shaw deliver those the way that she does, ah, it was so good. So good. Fiona Shaw also delivered that last line in a way that made it sound like ah, I wouldn't really care if they wanted to take me with them. Like I'm, I'm pretty I'm done. done. Mm-hmm. But, right. um, but, but now she's just there to impart warnings on Navarro. Right. She's she's the uh, weird mystic. Right. She's the one who's a little bit more in tune and in touch with the spirit world. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. I love Navarro saying, how do you stay okay? And she just takes a big, long drag on her split. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really in, nice in, a, in a very green manner. Yes. Uh, and very importantly, don't confuse the spirit world with mental health issues. I think this is a really key point. And this goes back into what Jules, um, Navarro's sister, is dealing with, right? There's obviously yeah. some sort of mental health uh, concerns there. Or and that has nothing to do with talking to the ghosts and, and being in a place called Ennis that seems to be the where fabric of the universe is tearing. Right. That's interesting. If you're in a world where ghosts are real, how do you tell the difference? Yeah. And 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 Rose says that, right? That's the important thing that you got to know how to tell these things apart for the re, you know, the, the real from the mental health. And then, then within the, not the real, but uh, whatever the spirit world of it and which kind are they in the spirit world? Right. All right. Danvers returns to the station where her boss, Ted Carrasso played by Christopher Eccleston is getting briefed on the case. Hank, uh, by Hank. Liz uses departmental protocols to force the issue to keep control of the case for 48 hours. Ted Corsaro. I, it took me so long to figure out that this was Christopher Eccleston because the <laughs> voice is just so different. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's that his accent as he, he's, he's from Northern England. Right. And yeah. I don't know if his Northern English accent makes his voice sound a little bit higher and i think in general british accents end up sounding a little higher in tone Mm. than american accents i think we hold our voices lower because we're taught to be emotionless and (laughs) anyway okay the point is um i couldn't tell it was him because he was doing this cop voice that was really good that Mm -hmm. i i totally bought uh and he's he's aged since i last saw him in doctor who yes quite a lot i mean it's been 25 years, right? It's almost 25 years since he filmed that season. No, it hasn't. It's been like 20 years. But anyway, okay. anyway. the point is, the point is, uh, I was so impressed because he fell into that role so well. Yeah, he. it, it was a natural. It was a natural. Also, I don't know if I'd call her, call him her boss. I don't know if that's true. I think he is, it's sort of a supremacy issue, right? It's, it's he works for the state police. No. It's the same thing as with Navarro and No. And different. Yeah. I so here's my this is my uh headcanon on this, if you okay. will allow me. State troopers are state troopers. And I, I've heard some conversation too about the relationship between the, the state troopers and this uh law enforcement agency. And some people were saying, oh, she got busted down to state trooper. Typically being a state trooper is higher in status than being yeah, municipal because yeah. the state troopers really have much higher standards because you really do operate alone and mm-hmm. you, you don't have a lot of backup and stuff like that. So, so that's that. So that's a little bit different, but I think what's different here or what's, you know, and interesting here is like the hat that she's wearing is AFP, right? And it says Enos police on her patch, but she's talking about Anchorage and calling command and uh, having uh, uh, Ted, you know, give her a promotion and transfer her to this location. I think what they've done is they've sort of regionalized the police force in a way mm-hmm. where typically we would have a municipality where, and Josh the Black uh, and I were talking about this on the Bald Move Discord, 
was, you know, where the, the police, the chief of police would answer to a mayor or a select board or something like that. And that would be the jurisdiction of that police force would be for that municipality or, or area. I think what they've done is they've created a fictional force that's a little bit more regional in scale, more like a sheriff's uh, structure, or maybe a little bit more like the UK, where if you're a member of the force, you're a member of the force, and it's just, you know, you're that office or this office. You know, you're either the downtown London Met office or you're out right, at right. You know, Lincolnshire, you know, station, whatever. But you're all still cops for the same agency, ultimately. And so I think what they've done here is that a little bit, that where there's this umbrella. And it's made up, right? That doesn't exist in Alaska currently. So I think they've done that so that they can do a little bit of the story work. That's my headcanon. If you say so, I'm willing to go with it because I don't care enough to argue. (laughs) Right. right. It doesn't really matter that much. (laughs) Yeah. It's only for us nerds who want to get into the details. Fair enough. What is interesting, though, is that Hank in, in, uh, in episode two, we see on his uniform, he's got... Uh, captain's bars on his collar. That's the two um, parallel lines next to each other. And so you can be a rank of a captain in a police department, but not be the chief. So uh, Danvers wears the chief stars, right? Like I think she's got four stars. So she's the head of this unit, this organization. This is her jurisdiction. This is her territory. And she's she's like a, um, a captain of a ship where uh, Carasso is maybe an admiral, right? Corsaro. Back in, hmm? You're going to get write-ins I, if you don't get this I right. I know. I'm going to get it right. Corsaro. <laughs> Corsaro is like an admiral back in the way back, right? And he's got nominally uh, authority over her, but she is a command in her own right. And you, you don't cross those lines. You, you know, you, you don't, you don't, Brace. You respect you respect exactly. each leader in it's it's kind of like king of your own castle, right? That idea exactly, exactly. So this is her fiefdom. That's an, that's another really good way to to think of it. So cool. All right, I uh, buy it. I think another thing is interesting is that we kind of have a little time clock now running for the season. We've got yeah. Liz has forty eight hours um, to make some progress on this case. Otherwise. Um, Corsaro. Okay, I just slow myself down to say it. Corsaro pulls this thing out from underneath her. Yep. So and uh, and you know the minute she pulls out the the, the law book, yes, you, you know policy, that he was policy. like, "Yeah, oh, fuck, she got me." <laughs> <laughs> you know that he just he didn't even want to argue it. He's like, "She knows the law. She's not making that up." She cited chapter and verse. <laughs> it yep, was perfect. Yep. And she went straight to it. A, a reading exactly from the book of APB. AFP. <laughs> yeah. It was it was brilliant. Uh, and, and I think that all goes back into the point that we are, are establishing that Danvers is competent. She's a yeah. competent investigator. She's competent law enforcement. She's you know, in the sense of she knows this stuff. And um she may have a terrible, uh, I, don't, I don't want to call it bedside manner, but, you know. Sure. Her, no, I, that, that's a good word for it, honestly. And yeah, I, yeah. I think the problem is if you operate like her, it's it's sort of like being the person at work who pisses everyone off and, mm-hmm. and rats on everybody. I think that it's, it's like if you're an, a nice interpersonal person, you will be forgiven if you make a mistake. Like people will help right. you figure right. it out. People will teach you what you did wrong and right. try to help, you know, mitigate damage. If you are the person who is so by the book it enrages everyone, then the first time you make a mistake, you're screwed. Right. And you're gonna get and yeah, I think, there's gonna be retribution. 
she is on thin ice with every single person around her. The minute she messes up, Hank's going to be right on her. And she can't mess up. Right. Right. She's really on the edge. I totally agree. I totally agree. And so I think what, what part of what we learn throughout the course of this episode in different parts and pieces is that she was promoted, transferred to this location. Hank wears captain's bars. So was he next in line? Did she take his job? Is that why he's such a, <laughs> a D bag? Um, Maybe, know, yeah. yeah. You know that. What's the source of their friction? You know w- what's with the passive aggressive? Uh, I'll check the files when I feel like it, and I'm going to keep these here for a long as long as I want because yeah. he's got authority. He's a captain. You can't just in a civil service you can't just dump them out with without having cause. And who are you going to get to replace them anyway? It's not like people are beating down the doors to work in this Alaska, you know right? Or even in the police force, I mean, that's another conversation, but you know how, you know, in certain areas of the U.S., you get paid a lot to be a cop, but it's very few and far between. I think yeah. that a lot of a lot of police are are really underpaid for the job. And and uh, this is not like a promote the cops show. I'm just saying, like, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, just it's not a well-paid yeah. job in a yeah. lot of areas. And I think that a rural town in Alaska would be one of those areas where it's not well paid. It's and difficult for what you got to deal with. You know, you don't get to get a snow day, right? You got to go out in this crazy ice all the time yeah. and figure out yep. people's disputes yep. and you got to almost get hit by a drunk driver because the same town drunk for some reason keeps getting out and doing that. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so I can wear on you. So yeah, I yeah. mean, they're all, they're all, you know, and I think that's, yeah, it's a small community in a, uh, uh, it, it's isolation is even greater because of the, the hostility of the climate. Right. And so you're really forced in on top of each other. Yeah. And then this goes into Danvers emotional reactivity, right? The music, the way she reacted to the twist and shout to the way she reacted to Stacy Chalmers, you know, the drunk driver. And all of this is in diet is diametrically opposed to her, her methodical and calm investigative mind. Elementary Watson. Absolutely. And so um, she is in, uh, could we say her heart is in conflict with itself? <laughs> Where and, and she uses sex in this episode maybe to solve some of that, you know, to deal with some of that, uh, those emotional traumas that she's holding on to and this tension that she's under. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it. it's, it's a complex role. I mean, it's a really complex character and I love it. I love the dimensionality that they're, they're giving us. Yeah. Okay. So we cut scene to the town ice rink where we meet Kate McKittrick. She's somehow a big wig at the silver sky mine. Um, Liz requires the use of the rink. And then the corpsicle is brought through the center of town, all set to little St. Nick by the beach boys. And then Navarro shows up. Big scene. Lots going on. What'd you think? Yeah. um, Again, nobody pleased to see. Liz Danvers, nobody pleased to see her. <laughs> Every single time Liz Danvers walks into the room, everyone puts their head in their hand and go, oh, fuck. Uh, exactly. I saw that parking ticket from two years ago and I, right. She's going to bring it up. And, and, uh, what like, does she I, want? I have a feeling that Liz Danvers has read the file on every single person living in Ennis, Alaska, and could mm-hmm. tell you everything you've done wrong since you were 16. Uh, probably. <laughs> I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to cross with her. 
But then if she doesn't care, she doesn't care, right? You know, so just don't get on her radar. Yeah. yeah. Avoid. Yeah. So yeah. Exactly. We um, in episode one we learned that Navarro had uh, crossed paths with Kate McKittrick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when, when, uh, Nav- uh, Danvers is talking to the younger prior, uh, she says, oh, you know, she started bothering mine people when she was investigating any case case, even Kate McKittrick and, uh, young Peter was like, whoa, you know, whoa, like that's, that's not good. So here we are with Kate McKittrick. And then I loved it when she's walking out of the ice rink and she's just like, oh, fucking Danvers. And she's like, oh, Trooper Navarro <laughs> and keeps walking. It was like brilliant scene to tell us everything we needed to know about you know the interactions between all of these characters yeah two completely i want to say unlikable to their to their people right to the to the Mm -hmm. surrounding people i think they're interpersonally unpleasant to others yep and they have to work together on this case now which is kind of fun so it's it's like white house plumbers but better written (laughs) much better written so a few details. We meet Leah's girlfriend. Uh, we learn that Peter seems to know how to skate because uh, McKittrick wants to hire him for to teach some private le- So Oh, wait, maybe hmm, some private lessons. I don't know. Mm. Um, and Leah and Liz's relationship is really messed up. You know, Leah's like, yes. oh, you came to watch me play. She's like, no, I didn't. You know, and she's like, where's where's that damn McKittrick, yeah. right? You know. Again, completely withholding. This, oh the, she could have just been like, oh, "I'm so sorry. I'm I'm so busy with this case, but I hope you did great." You know, um, anything, or maybe just go watch her play. But you know, um, even if even if she couldn't, even if she really was just slammed on this case, and you know, she had the big boss in town, she couldn't make it. Fine, but then you know, express some regret. Yeah, something. Give her something. I definitely Nothing. will make the next one. Really, really messed up. Yeah. So um, about the corpsicle. So here, here's in my note, uh, Hieronymus Bosch. So you should Google that and then you will see some of the um, references that people are using for the, the corpsicle. But a great overhead oh, shot yeah. of the block. That's and, spooky. And uh, we get some uh, other great shots later on in the episode. So we learn that they might have been biting themselves, some sort of uh, uh, self-inflicted wounds. We count five heads and nine feet because one of the feet got broken off by one of the one of the police officers up at the uh, at the site. I think this is the scene where we see the spiral design. I, did I have the spiral design in there? I can't remember now which. You did. Um, yeah, we talked about it earlier. But yeah, we we got that here, and then um, we get uh, Pryor, who is the you know uh, young clever guy. He figures out how to unlock the phone. I, th- I thought that was pretty good. Um, and then more Danvers and, and Navarro friction, right? So we're deepening that conflict between the two. You have all the guys there. You can't just hold up the phone to the screaming yeah. guys. <laughs> it works. Face ID. It worked for uh, Molina. So, mm. and that was the one that had died, right? And then we're, we're going to get the video later. And this is what I liked. Even within the episode, we were paying off from from clue to clue. It's like, okay, we all picked up on the episode one that the phone was recording. Episode mm-hmm. two, oh, he unlocks it. And not only does he do we unlock it, but we get the answer in the same episode, right? So they, they didn't push that reveal into episode three. They gave us uh, that answer in the same episode. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. I think that this, again, better pacing. 
asking why not what like why did he suddenly mm. appear seem to have some kind of seizure or involuntary spasm uh you know standing there and then stop and say you know why why did he do that that's right. fine that's fine ask that don't ask what he did right all right, Navarro checks in with Ryan at Kovic's bar or Kovic's burger joint. Sorry, uh, we get some more backstory about the mine, and we meet Chuck, uh, who seems to know Clark. And a fight breaks out about the impacts of the mine on the local environment. So Kovic apparently means Wolverine. Uh, oh, in, in um, a real Logan over here. Yes, exactly. And uh, we get that Jules is working there uh, for Kovic as well, which we kind of had got some hints of that from episode one. Mm-hmm. What uh, what might have you picked up from this particular scene? See, see you're spoiling me because I could see all your notes in you. In oh, the okay, maybe I should black I them go. out. <laughs> yeah, I should. I, I should just not. I'll just not scroll down from now on. I'm like, right. Um, I, I I'll just bring in your notes now. Uh, the the mine poisoning the area. So that's mm-hmm. that's I I guess something that we're gonna have to keep an eye on. Is that happening? It maybe that's what's waking her up. Right, she's awake. So this is the like second major line of inquiry that seems to be out there that uh, the mine is doing something. And then people are even like, well, how are the mine and the uh, uh, the research station working together or not working together? But something's happening because of the two are here. So there, but there's a lot of theories about what's happening with the mine and what the mine is doing to the environment. And I think that's interesting, too, because it's the show is dealing with all real world circumstances, but none of them are they're not pushing that forward in a way that, Hey, this show is just an allegory for what's really happening to the the earth. No, it's just a story. And then yeah. here are real world things that are happening. And you could, you could find this in any state of our country where there's um, environmental degradation happening, poisoning and, and polluting. We can find crime. We can find corruption. You know, it's, it's all here. And so it's, it's really nicely woven in, I think. And what's the right question, David? The right que- oh, for for which issue? The right question is what the frack. Oh, <laughs> that's a uh, frack. Didn't we talk about frack before? That's Battlestar Galactica. No, I'm saying fracking, like you know, oh, fracking frack. For oil oh, the gosh. mines. I'm, I was I'm being listen, so obtuse. It's a mining joke. I missed it by a mile, and I don't even have a mining joke to retort to. <laughs> anyway, uh, that I can retort with. Uh, so Mosley, Chuck Mosley here, the um, Reddit's picked up on this guy outside of the mine when Navarro went initially to meet Ryan, the camera sort of lingered on him. So nice, uh, little tease to, to bring his character forward. Mosley is the new Markley. There you go. I'm calling it. (laughs) Back to the ice rink, Danvers and Peter Pryor work the case and Liz schools Peter in the ways of the Sherlock. Uh, we've got the last airbender coming up. Are we going to have the last Sherlock? Is that something that we can Oh, my do? God. So I, I actually was not bothered by this scene. I thought it dragged on a little bit. Okay. But uh, overall, I thought it was mu- a much better Sherlockian moment than the first one, though I could have seen Benedict Cumberbatch sitting in an armchair saying these <laughs> same things to uh, Martin Freeman. Exactly. Instead, she was wearing her uh, her Lowell, uh, Lowell's, what are those boots, those warm, fuzzy boots and stomping oh, on the, uh, the bleachers. Anyway, um, Sorrells, that's what they were. I think they were Sorrells. Okay. Nice boots. Um, Lulu, the um, admin at the police station, calls in to let Liz know that the delivery driver and the cleaning ladies are ready for questioning. And then they see the video from Melina's phone. So we get an immediate resolution, as we said before. Yeah. 
So spooky. We get um, Peter mentions a, a polar bear. I can't remember what this reference is. There's lots of polar bears in this whole episode. I've got pictures of them all up on the detective's notebook. There's uh, I, I'll call them out in, in some other scenes, but we've got polar bear iconography all over the place. Um, so where they're going with that, it's hard to tell at this stage, you know, and obviously we had a couple polar bears in the last one. Um, they talked about paradoxical undressing, which is a thing. And it's in a later stage of severe hypothermia. You can have mild, moderate, and severe hypothermia and increasingly body function shuts down, mental impairment starts to happen. And the other uh, disturbing thing that can happen with paradoxical undressing is terminal burrowing. And I don't know that the corpsicle is necessarily terminal burrowing, but apparently people who are under severe hypothermia not only will take all their clothes off, but they'll try to burrow into something. So, you know, they'll try to burrow into the snow or they'll, you know, burrow into a corner of a room or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, and then we get uh, some more information about the clothing not matching the bodies, the five pairs of pants, three shoe, three missing shoes, and everything's folded. So it, it really feels ritualistic in some way. Like there's some ritual to the fact that somebody took the time to fold the clothes and place them out there like that. Yeah, it's a really good question. Why fold them, right? Not just leave mm -hmm. them in a pile or, or you know, leave them on the people. Right, exactly. Because, yeah, why, what, what, what happened here? How, well, and then like Peter does, uh, he asks the question, you know, um, why would you run out on the ice without your shoes on? Right. Was that the right. question? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Why, why would you? Or what, what, what would cause somebody or yeah, to have them. Have yeah. That, they were uh, scared, direction. but why? Mm -hmm. And why were right. they naked to begin with? Do you just sit around your house naked? Cause I don't. I sure don't. I I'm sure do some that. do, but, but yeah. these five hey, guys, teach a, teach uh, six guys, seven guys, whoever they are, yeah. um, six guys plus one living, I think we're at. Apparently Clark walked around uh, half naked or naked uh, quite a lot, which we'll, we'll find out a little bit later. Mm. Uh, Kavik and Navarro talk while Kavik uh, doctors one of his huskies. Um, and we get a, a few more clues about the water thing, how that's getting bad. Um and that there's more talk of mine protests. So I think this this, serve, this scene was a little bit of transition, a little bit more uh, clue drops and deepening the relationship with uh, Kavik and Navarro. There's been some talk uh, around the internets about the sex scene that Kavik and Navarro had and mm -hmm. whether, you know, Navarro was... Um, uh, inappropriate in some way in, in how she was uh, sort of managing Kavik. During yeah. Their, their I, I think that certainly it, at least reasonable to raise the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, it was not great. But I think it's, say. I think it goes to some of her character and um, this idea that, you know, uh, a woman and her sexuality. Obviously, Navarro is a is a, a very ego strong woman and and dominant in a, in a lot of ways. And I was thinking about that scene relative to this conversation, not not just the scene for itself. That uh, blimey, uh, that um, she wasn't interested so much in reaching a climax herself, but that she took pleasure from 
managing Kavik. So it's a, it's a power relationship thing, right? And, and a lot of sexual relationships are about power dynamics, right? So, but in this scene, they seem to be quite at ease with each other and they seem to be very at ease with each other later on. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's strange. It's strange, but yeah, you know, it's, we don't know the boundaries that they've set up. Right. I guess I would say. Right. We're jumping into this relationship in the middle. And um, she did steal his toothbrush. SpongeBob is the king in yellow. That's all I'll say about that. Uh, Danvers. We love SpongeBob. <laughs> the fool who ripped his pants. Danvers and Peter. Question- now, hold on. I have yeah. a theory. Okay. They weren't wearing clothes on the ice. And SpongeBob was the fool who ripped his pants. <laughs> Connection. Sponge- yes. Absolutely. Connection. I'm I'm down for it. <laughs> Go on. Danvers and Peter question possible witnesses. Uh, Danvers talks to the cleaners, and Peter talks to Bill Wallace, the delivery driver. Yeah, the most interesting thing to come out of here was just uh, Clark being a weirdo. Right, right. That was the big thing. Was it? Did they say that Clark was the one who yelled at the cleaners? Uh, no, Lund was the one who yelled Lund at did. one of the okay. cleaners. He's the the research director. He's the founder okay. of of, of um, Salal. But yeah. Clark, yeah, we learned that you know, yeah, he was he was weird, always in his room. They couldn't clean his room. Um, uh, Bill, the delivery driver, saw him, I guess, fully naked and saw the tattoo. That's how he gets the tattoo. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so this is all just uh, standard detective um, moving the the plot forward. I do like uh, Bill's line, though. Even the dead get bored. That yeah, was really, that's a good line. Yeah. And it goes into the the Billie Eilish song and it goes into uh, the opening quote. Oh, something about the opening quote, which I did not realize. And the, the Reddits have schooled me otherwise. That opening quote is a made up quote from the made up character. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> the... Um, Apparently, Issa Lopez wrote that line, attributed to that character from that short story. And so not only is that character a unreliable narrator, we have a quote that doesn't belong to him. Uh, yeah. From that. What's that effect that they say where like everyone misremembers something? So that becomes the thing. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, well, I think so. Yeah, I, I think Rule it's that. Remembering. You're Googling. And it becomes. Well, it's reality. called the big lie. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, the Mandela effect. The Mandela uh, effect. That's what okay. they call it. I don't know that and one actually. It, it occurs when a large group of people believe an event occurred when it did not. That actually could be something that's going on in this uh, in the show as well. I'm going to I'm going to read you the the intro to it. The Mandela effect got its name when Fiona Broom, a self-identified paranormal consultant, detailed how she remembered former South African president Nelson Mandela dying in the 1980s in prison, although he lived until 2013. She could she could remember uh, news coverage of his death and even a speech from his widow about his death. Yet none of it happened. And so uh, apparently other people thought the, the exact same as her when she looked into it. Okay. So this is the idea of the Mandela effect. And and people bring it up as um like do you know the, the fruit of the loom conspiracy theory? No. <laughs> okay. All right. 
Let me ask you a question. Does Fruit of the Loom have a cornucopia in its logo? Uh, I don't rightly remember. I just know fruit. And I and I remember the commercials from when I was a kid when they had a bunch of guys running around in the in the fruit suits. But okay. I couldn't I couldn't say. So people remembered forever Fruit of the Loom having a cornucopia in the logo. Interesting. And corn and Fruit of the Loom denies to this day oh. <laughs> that there was ever a cornucopia okay. in the logo. Okay. Now, other people have gone down the rabbit hole and like even gone to the US Copyright Office and found right. dug up all kind of stuff. evidence that there probably was a cornucopia in the logo, but Th- there's this whole like Mandela effect conversation about this, but so that's that's what people usually refer to when they talk about this is like something kind of benign, but that just everyone seems to misremember. Interesting. I think uh, there is one on uh, Carl Sagan saying the word billions. So everybody makes a joke about saying billions and billions and billions in in a Carl Sagan yeah, yeah, yeah. voice, and then I think Julia Childs. Is another one where there's some Mandela effect stuff going on, uh, and and there's even a Star Wars one. Luke, uh-huh. I am your father. Is really no, I am your father. Oh, interesting, interesting. So okay. that's it. That's it. Anyway, we've we've spent a lot of time on this, but I, th- it reminded me of what you what you're talking about here, right? Is you know, you're you're. Uh, how did we even get here? <laughs> <laughs> We were talking about, uh, oh, the fake quote, the fake quote. Right, right, right. The fake quote. Okay, we got back. We got back. Don't worry. Thank you for saving us, David. Um, The fake quote. So maybe that's what she's playing with, right? If if everyone misremembers something happening, did it happen that way? Exactly. And that what is – and okay, so this gets into this whole question of what is a true detective show, what makes a a show a true detective show. And one of them is – one of the hallmarks of a true detective show is memory. And recollection and this idea that Russ Cole talks about in season one of time as being as a flat circle and that, you know, all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again uh, type of stuff, which we get echoed through a number of other different television properties. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I want to actually cross circuit another thing, which you, you and I both just finished watching Fargo season five and we're going to talk about it and record a, a, an episode. Oh, about oh, that. A, a line, not a circle. Uh, no, the, from the beginning <laughs> of the episodes of all the four, five seasons of Fargo television show, and even the movie, uh, the events in this are true, uh, and the names have been changed to protect, uh, protect the dead and the innocent, whatever. Right. Yeah. That whole thing. So it's like, it's, it's intentionally met. And so with, with Lopez putting this false quote up front, it's intentionally messing with us in this same Mandela effect way, I think. It's having us see things or relate to things that may or may not be there in, in particular desired effects. Does that make sense? Yeah, I buy okay. it. I buy it. Maybe I, I've been hanging out with Rose, you know, <laughs> <laughs> enjoying the long night in a, in a spliff. How do you grow that up there? That's You don't. Arctic prices, baby. You got to fly everything in. Oh, boy. Hydroponics. That's no good. That's no good. Expensive, though. Super expensive. Yeah. Okay, let's <laughs> shall we move on to the? Next I think scene? we should do the next scene probably. Okay, <laughs> Navarro drives out to que- question Chuck Mosley, uh, the guy from the burger joint, and she jams out to the Spice Girls wannabe, and then discovers a necklace with a cross on it that induces a flashback. 
and we get a lot of flashbacks in this episode. We get Travis and a, and a couple more. So yeah, maybe do your flashbacks when you're not driving, Mo. Yeah, exactly. Not good. And that's another hallmark of a production hallmark of True Detective is flashbacks. Oh yeah. Yeah, and this time, what is time, and and how do we tell stories in time backwards and forwards and forwards and backwards? Right. So so are these. Is this just memory? Is this just something happening in her mind? Or is there some kind of effect of Ennis happening, bleeding in, you know? Because I, I know you you flagged as a true detective hallmark unseen for evil forces affecting right. the world. Mm-hmm. I think this is telling us a little backstory about Angie and Jules and their mother. And then this question of, of mental illness. Um, I, that's where I was going with it. So that the the cross was her mother's. She hasn't seen it or thought about it or thought about her mother in a while. And then we just get that intense emotional reaction because she was singing a song that her sister really loves. And so she was jamming on that. And so all of those neurons started firing off and, and she just got that really violent uh, flashback. Yeah. All right. So that's the way I took it and and clearly painting a picture of of their mother as having um, some severe mental illness to the point where like it was a, yeah, it had a real impact on their lives. Okay. um, So again, we saw Mosley outside the mine. So we got that and um, we uh, I've got a bunch of notes here. There's a lot going on here. Um, Can I I just want to go back to Navarro really quick singing and smiling. The um, the idea of of both these characters, Danvers and Navarro, being complex. And this is the first time that we've seen Navarro have joy. And I would agree with that (laughs) inside of joy. And so um, so it, it tells us something about her, that she is a person who has known joy. And so that's relatable to us. Um, she's a woman who's uh, sexually active and, and owns her sexuality, uh, possibly owns other people's sexualities. Um, she's served in combat. She's physically capable. So we're getting this really complex, rich character. And I think something that's really important that we've been getting is that, you know, she's carrying any case case. Um, and she puts gas or alcohol in the guy's gas tank, right? The mm-hmm. guy that she he arrested before. So that's right. criminal mischief, right? She's a trooper. You know, that's, she broke the law. She knows Kavik is uh, making moonshine, right? So these are all right. illegalities. Um, she doesn't care about the law. She cares about justice. And she Which wears the- that. She wears the uniform as a means to an end to seek justice. See, it's such an interesting thing because that's the kind of person where you root for as long as you agree with her, right? Mm -hmm. You compare that to somebody like Roy Tillman in Fargo. Right. Who also feels the same. Literally has a speech about, you know, the, the law being more important than, or sorry, justice being more important than the law. And so you gotta be really careful with that thing. Yes, because it can stray really easy. And that's why we have the law to have an objective check on our behaviors, right? Right. Sure. So 
so yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting um, uh, picture that they're painting of Navarro. And uh, I, I like that they're doing it in story, uh, right? Instead of just, you know, having some POV character uh, exposit it for us. Yep, I agree with that. Okay, so Navarro arrives at the mine housing and leverages a conversation with Mosley. I, I really like how she used the bill from the bar as her leverage point. She's <laughs> yeah. just like, that's pretty good, right? Yeah. I got you. <laughs> you know, you're boxed in. You got to answer my questions. Right. Okay. Major season one tie-in. Okay. This guy is the cousin of the guy who sold the uh, trailer. Mm-hmm. The guy who who sold the trailer died of bone cancer, which is leukemia, which is what Rose said. And I believe mm-hmm. season one, they referenced that as well. So this guy is Rust Cole's cousin. <laughs> uh, okay. So this is another major season one tieback. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Again, I, I've not watched season one or two or three for anyone. Right. No. Listening and wondering why I'm not commenting. That's that's why. Yeah, and it's just a we we don't know if these are determinative or or just um, Easter egg things. But yeah, right. Um, clue to note here is ten thousand dollars in cash seven years ago. So that probably I'm not going to do the math in the timeline, but that should line up. You know, for for all all intents and purposes. Hmm. Um, what did you make of Reese's or, or Navarro's? Um, comment to him at the end about he he didn't disapprove of Annie's murder. That he was, you know, kind of maybe glad that she was murdered like that. Um, that's pretty awful. Mm-hmm. You know, what but am I, I mean, like, what is about that? <laughs> well, I, I because she's making us, uh, she's making a point there, right? And and it goes back into this justice for. For whom? Who is for, who is justice for? Yeah. And one of the things that we are picking up in this season is is the the issue of this sort of epidemic of um, murdered Native women across our country. Yeah. Um, there was. Do you remember the Gabby Petito thing? No. Which is not a. Uh, she's not an indigenous woman. Okay. She was a a white woman uh, from New York who was unfortunately very sadly murdered by her uh, her partner. Uh-huh. She was on a road trip with him, and she was murdered by him over the summer. She went missing. They couldn't oh, find was her this... for a while. Yeah, there was a lot of... Yeah. I remember this last year, I think, last couple of years, yeah. So I don't remember the exact number, but people were doing TikToks about how dozens, I think, of indigenous women went missing in the same period and were never brought on television or anything. Right. And there was no effort to find them or or figure out what happened to them. And I think that's a big point that the show might be trying to make, which is we treat crimes against indigenous women much with much less priority. Right. Than we treat crimes against a white woman. Right. Or people of privilege of any kind. Yeah. 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 But I, I just in general, you know, right now. Six men, seven men, six men died, seven men are involved with this research station. 
not even people from this area, right? They uh, right, exactly. Yeah, they're from all over the world, actually. And that that's every you know Anchorage is coming in. We're figuring out what's going on. Like the, everything's getting pulled out for these guys. They're shutting down the town's ice rink. What the hell else is there to do in Ennis? They're <laughs> exactly. shutting down the in ice the rink dark. for two days. Exactly. I'm sure they're not paying her a lot for it. They probably have to give her some kind of eminent domain money, but I, I don't think it's a lot. It's probably like a hundred bucks or something. <laughs> Right, right. And uh, yeah, so and, and that's just for these guys. And, and it's very sad what happened to them. And they should get justice, not to say that they shouldn't get justice. But it's just a shame that the stops don't come out for people. The of allocation the of time. justice is is sure. out of balance. Here. It's uneven. Yeah. Yep. It's uneven. Yep. And I think that's where it, what Reese, who's a known activist as well uh, in this scene, I felt like she wasn't only playing the character Navarro and talking to, to Mosley in this way, but she was saying to us in the audience that this other thing is, is well, but it was so seamless. And so just, it fits so nicely that, uh, you know, I don't feel like the show is preaching at me. I just feel like the show is dealing with the, the, right. the circumstances as we have them. And it's just, as I said before, just, this is just set. This is what's just going on in this setting of this story. Yeah. There's, they're showing, they're not telling. Exactly. All right, David, let's take a quick break. When we get back, we'll catch up with our friends Danvers and Navarro. And we're back. So we pick up with Hank, who is messaging with uh, Lena while listening to I Love You, Love You by Johnny Cash. And then he finds that the Annie K file box is missing. Mm. So I guess I was wrong. I think I think you asked me last time, do you think he knew that his son took it? Mm -hmm. And I guess I was wrong because I thought I thought no. But I guess I guess he did get it over on him the first time. I thought right? you said yes. I said no, I thought. Oh no! I thought it was reverse. I, th oh, I thought so you, that I thought that he won. We're we're in the true detective zone now. Here we we where memory becomes <laughs> um, the Mandela the effect of about the our Mandela own podcast. Is exactly is happening. It's the Metanella effect. We were wrong. I certainly knew I was. I I, I certainly feel like I was wrong because I thought he knew and he just let it blow by. But clearly he did not. Clearly he did not. What do you make of Alina? Uh, what do I think about her? I don't know a lot about her right now, but next week on 90 day fiance, we'll be seeing this couple. <laughs> Hank and Alina. I got major red flags when she said, I'm worried about mother. And he said, don't worry. I've got some money left that I'll send you. Hmm. I've seen that this episode of 90 day fiance. <laughs> this it is doesn't go well. It does not doesn't go well on the tell all it's going to be crazy in and then later <laughs> when hank is at the ice rink with his son uh he says your mother and even when your mother left us she didn't steal from us so i just feel like hank's gonna get fleeced big time here yeah so yeah and and didn't we speculate that he hank had a previous relationship with um stacy as well yes mm -hmm. yeah so hank's hank's busy he's a busy boy uh, Danvers and Young Pryor discuss the case over some fine Alaskan bodega and coffee, and we learn more about Clark, 
as well as the funding source for Shalal. Danvers continues to consume Peter. Okay, another major season one callback. Um, the Shell Company, NC Global Strategies, is owned by Tuttle United. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to say any more, but if you know, you know. And uh, Tuttle is uh, a major name from season one. So yet a third uh, big callback. So we got Travis. We got two point data points on Travis. Uh, we got the spiral, obviously, and then this mention of Tuttle. So, and I'm sure the I've been waiting all week for this episode to hit the airwaves, and I'm just going to watch the Reddit boards light up because it's going to be fire <laughs> when it does. People are going to lose their shit. Cool. Now, I, I love when people get rewarded for being loyal to a, an anthology show. They do that <laughs> in American Horror Story poorly, and right. uh, <laughs> I'm glad that they're doing it better here. Uh, so Clark is from Dublin and he hasn't spoken to his mom in over 10 years. That's very sad. Yeah. And Danvers' life seems really messed up and she's going to mess up Peter's life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. He's, what were you he's saying done. last episode about, um, about the, the relationship? There was something about, the um, about her, oh, be the, the kind of boss that she is. Like you want her approval. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that you 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 want her approval because it feels good, right? She's the boss mm-hmm. who's tough on you, but you can earn her approval. That's whereas it, yeah, yeah. Hank yeah. is the boss who's just a dick to be a dick, right? And he's the, he's he's the boss that's going to push all the work on you to not do work himself. Whereas I think Danvers, you can see, you know, when she, you know, she's not gonna she's not gonna hand you the answers, just like she makes. Uh, young prior ask all the questions to her later mm-hmm. but she rewards him when he asks the right questions right she's like yeah that's the right question she really encourages him and and you can tell he like lights up at that he's ready yeah. to go yeah um it's it's great it's great so i i think that's a good characterization of her and she doesn't necessarily have the answers right she's working the case Right. She she is working with him, even if she's just like Socrates taught by asking questions. That doesn't mean he wasn't working. Right. <laughs> Very mean he wasn't teaching. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she doesn't have it all figured out. She's yeah, they're 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 figuring it out together, but she's guiding him in it. Did you ever see the name a movie called The Name of the Rose? With Sean no. Connery, um, this feels very much like that, where this uh, I believe it was, it was a Franciscan Fran, Franciscan monk who solves this, this big murder. And it was a, it made a big splash when it came out. I think it was in the nineties sometime anyway, but it's very much like that. This Socratic sort of method. Mm-hmm. All right. Danvers shows up at Peter's house, which was really weird to go from that scene to like, wait, you're kicking him to the ice rink, but then you're going over to his house. That's up yeah. There. <laughs> um, to pick up Leah. Cause I guess Leah was over there and Peter and Kyla, Kayla talk while Peter and Kayla are talking on the phone. Kayla's grandmother is putting tribal markings on Leah, which upsets Danvers, who then gets kicked out of the house by Kayla. So I think that's this, fair to kick her out. This was a pretty bracing scene. Why can't she have temporary child, uh, te- temporary tribal marks? Yeah. She is clearly, this, this again is this opposite side of Danvers, this unhinged, emotionally reactive side of her. 
yeah, and she's like, oh, she's a child, and oh, she's 17, which, again, I, I said this to you, I was like, why even make us go like, oh, is she, you know, having an improper relationship with a 16-year-old? Right. When she was 17 the whole time, they're probably in the same grade. Right. And we actually have some feedback about that <laughs> later. Yeah. It's just like, that's what I mean about episode one. I thought it made me ask like what instead of why. And that mm. that was one of the what questions. It just felt yeah. like unnecessary mystery. So I've got a working theory about Danvers's reaction to native culture. Mm-hmm. That this is all part of her trauma response, unjustified, uh, clearly, but her trauma response to whatever happened with her husband and son. Yeah, probably. Probably. And and it could be something where she, like, thinks that, you know, being identifiably indigenous puts you in more danger, which, you know, she that might be true, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you give in and let them take away your culture from you right right yeah and and for you know if if that were something where leah chose like hey you know what i i'm not into this culture i don't want to be part of it that's one thing but uh danvers trying to force her out of it is really horrible how hypocritical too she's like i don't care if you sleep with another kid just don't film it right whatever like you know you don't have to be a mom. It's okay. I'm going to do whatever. This whole are, are they or aren't they parent and and child? And if you're telling this person eight times out of ten, I'm not your parent and I don't care. But then, yeah. wait, I, I do something that that's part of my heritage. That's part of my birthright as a member of this community and a, and and a part of this these these extended families that I want to put on some traditional markings with a Sharpie? Like, who yeah. are you to tell me? Yeah. Right. That's just completely out of line for Danvers. Completely. It's messed up. It's messed up. Don't do that. Don't do that, Liz. I <laughs> don't, you know, every single time I've said her name tonight, I've almost said Carol. I'm yes. still there. <laughs> You're still there. I'm You're still, still right there. The I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> just got to slow down. And, um, I, I loved how the grandmother too was just like going off on Liz, like she was just giving her the what for. Yeah, not so the it. those. Uh, there's a big Wikipedia article on those three lines on the chin. I cannot pronounce the name, uh, and I'm not even gonna gonna try because uh, I don't want to do it any sort of disrespect. But there's a long. It's got a lot of history around it, and it's really interesting. So if you're interested in in that kind of stuff. Could we maybe we could put this link in the show notes, John? All right, I'll definitely yeah, put it in. Yeah, it starts the, uh, with a Y if you're looking for it in the show notes. They don't even provide you a phonetic thing, a phonetic guide to the the pronunciation. So I'm not going to try either. Usually I'll try it if they give me a phonetic guide, right. but no, I don't want to I, I don't know about this one. With it. So we'll just call it tribal markings. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fat, there's a, a long, deep tradition about it. It's really interesting. So um, check that out. I'll put the link in the um, uh, detective's uh, notebook as well for uh, Patreon subscribers. That'll be in cool. there. Cool. Yeah, it looks really cool. And and um, I hope Leah gets to enjoy it. I really do. She does. I don't, I I don't it, want Carol. Carol. I don't want Liz <laughs> to ruin it for her. It <laughs> yeah, it finally happened. Yeah. Uh, a little uh, clue or Easter eggy thing is the polar bear earrings that Leah is wearing. Very clearly mm. in the shot, polar little bears, right? So yep. more of that yep. polar bear iconic iconography. So 
not sure what's up with that, but it's there. And then we get confirmation that Leah's 17. So yep. that was a big question yeah. people were, were sleuthing on. Okay. Navarro and Jules, uh, they talk about Jules's health, uh, while they're shopping. Um, and we get the, the line Arctic pricing baby, which is very true. I've heard from people who have lived in or, or work in, um, in Alaska mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the cost, I mean, just getting milk, right. Uh, yeah. a cereal, like it's all going to keep the in. cows. Exactly. Which is why milk is not a part of <laughs> historical Alaskan culture. Right. So, uh, I'm really leaning I don't know that it matters, so so maybe I won't even necessarily talk about it. But I have some thoughts on on Jules's uh, um, mental condition, uh, her mental health concerns. I, I have a uh, old high school friend who was affected in, in a similar way, and it's it's really it's it's uh, it's a lot to deal with. So. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a shame. And again, we get more of Navarro's character here. This caring, the caring side of Navarro, right. So we got a badass. We have uh, somebody who's, you know, um, in control of their sexuality. We have somebody who's really concerned with justice. We have somebody who's traumatized by her personal past uh, with her and uh, around her family, with her mother. And then we have somebody who really gives, uh, 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 cares a lot for her little sister, right? And she's yeah. nurturing and, and trying to support her, but also just trying to be like, hey, I think you should do this. And she's like, no pushback and she's like okay i respect your boundary right so yeah. she respects her boundaries but not but not Kovic's. <laughs> yeah she's someone who who cares too much about a lot of things right mm-hmm. is yeah she cares really hard and it it sometimes is charming and it sometimes gets her you know success and things yeah and sometimes it like you were just saying it sometimes gets her in trouble all right, Leah begins to take off back at home. Leah begins to take off her markings when she gets a text from her girlfriend. She sneaks out while Liz fights with the Christmas decorations. Leah and her girlfriend meet at, I believe, is what her girlfriend's family store. And then Danvers finds the one eyed polar bear, which induces another flashback. Flashback, <laughs> flashback, flashback. Uh, the music that's playing in the, here is Pass Them By by. Agnes Obel, a uh, really beautiful song again. The music nice. has just been uh, top notch. Yeah. No, I I think um, both this and Fargo had interesting soundtracks where they didn't follow one style or other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, John, do you have a uh, process to store your holiday decorations? Do you just throw everything into the bin <laughs> as it is, or do you carefully wrap things up or somewhere in between? Um, we have like a thing that the delicate stuff goes into and then a bin that everything else gets thrown into. Okay. We have a real Christmas tree every year, yeah, so we don't have to store a tree. When I was a kid, oh my God, when I was a kid, we had a fake Christmas tree. Are we getting into about, a fishes episode here uh, maybe, in your backstory? <laughs> maybe. So we we had this fake Christmas tree that was huge, and it had like three different numbering systems to the oh nice to assembly. the assembly. Yeah, and so there were like the colors of the stripes, the number uh-huh. of stripes, and the placement of the stripes. And three different people had clearly set these up. <laughs> I love it. And they didn't make they didn't go together. So my brother, <laughs> my oldest brother and I, 
would sit there for like 12 hours on <laughs> like the day on like Black Friday on like the day after yeah. Thanksgiving and figure out how to make this stupid tree. That's hilarious. And it was a great it was a great time. We had a, a fun time with it. You know? Absolutely. But Beautiful oh, my God, did it take <laughs> so long every year? And not once did someone suggest, hey, maybe we should make our own system for next. Year. Right, exactly. Why don't we label these ourselves? <laughs> I don't know who first owned that tree. I don't know who made this problem of multiple methods. <laughs> but I love my, it. And my mom got rid of that tree at some point. I was like, man, you, you got rid of that tree. She goes, it was a pain. It's like, yeah, but that was our pain. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And that's a, another true detective hallmark is these deep memories and deep family connections and this uh, interplay between the detective's professional life and their personal life and, and how the those two things affect each other uh, yeah. sort of across that boundary of, of that individual. So, uh, okay. So big clue theory time thinking here really quick. We don't have to spend too much time on it, but I, I want to um, bring this one out. Well, we, we've got a couple of things to deal with. Let's, let's deal with the small stuff really quick. The bear, right? She finds it in the box. So how could she have picked it up on the floor when she was woken up then in episode one? Hmm. So I think that was in her dream. Okay. I buy it. Yeah. And then obviously we get twist and shout. We get the answer to twist and shout. Yeah. So again, a, a quick payoff. And then she puts the bear in the box and puts the box aside, which is a great metaphor for her emotional state. She's just putting her emotions of this loss and this trauma into a box and just pushing it aside and, and refusing to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Compartmentalization seems to be a big part of her life. Big time. Big time. Okay. So that out of the way, I want to come back around to Leah's room. There's a lot of aquatic imagery on the walls of Leah's room. There's like a whale and a bunch of other um, fish and, and stuff like that. Uh, and it's it's there. You got to look for it. You got to watch the episode, like, I don't know, half a dozen times like I did. Uh, and it's there. And this is a theory that uh, is getting kicked around quite a lot. So this is like the third major line of, of inquiry that the Reddit detectives. I heard this first on um, the Ringer, the Prestige uh, podcast with Joanna Robinson, and then Jim and Aaron were talking about it on Bald Move. There's the Wikipedia article, which covers all of this sort of information that we're all working with. And that is of um, a uh, Inuit, got, well, not even just Inuit, it's, it's sort of an Arctic regional myth of Sedna. And Sedna has a lot of different stories, origin stories in the, in the way that the particular things happen. But one thing that always does sort of happen is that her father cuts off her fingers um, and she sinks to the bottom of the ocean and then her fingers become all the sea life, the whales and the walruses and the, um, you know, the, all of the other kinds of marine life. And she is a, a, a bit of a vengeful or wrathful goddess has some control of the underworld controls the wildlife. And so what, you know, hunters have to appease her and, and, um, and uh, make, uh, make offerings in some cases to her, depending on the, the particular culture. And um, the idea here, it ties back to the picture that Darwin drew, right, in episode one. So Peter and Kayla's son, 
do the picture of the scary woman with the bleeding hands and the star fiery eyes. And so a lot of people are working on this idea that the metaphysical story overlay here is something to do with Sedna and that Sedna is awaking. She, you know, she's awaking. It's Sedna who's waking up. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I like it. I like it. Deep cut. Yes. So, and the Reddit, man, one episode in and like people have gone really far and these, this theory feels pretty solid. Like, yeah. is it, is yeah. it determinative? Is it, is it, um, is it, uh, uh, actually what's happening? Are we actually going to get a metaphysical answer? Or are we going to have a mundane answer or, or is it going to be ambiguous? The, the, this overlay feels really, um, that like that's a really solid clue. Like if a child draws a scary picture in a TV show like this, pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, well, I think I think what they're going to have to do is Leah and and Navarro are going to have to go north of the wall to get <laughs> exactly a, a minion of Sedna back to show Danvers so that she believes them. That's exactly right. All right, gruesome scenes of the corpsicle as Peter Pryor continues to work on it when he gets an interrupting phone call from Danvers asking for the credit history of Clark. Peter is assaulted by his father for stealing the Annie K case file. Yeah, that was really horrible. I mean, the, <laughs> so the, the slap, every, when he did that, I went, oh, shit. You know, like uh, that, w- that, that was not it. a jump scare for me. I, I saw uh-huh. that you wrote it was a jump scare. It was not a jump scare for me. I was jumped already. Okay. The intro. And um, <laughs> right. I was just like, oh, why is he doing that? It was the way that they edited it too. He, as he turns around and the way that the camera works, I, it, the, it really, the editing had a, a kinetic impact on me in the real world. Right. So it came off the screen and, and, and. I really felt that. And earlier in the um, intro, when I mentioned the acting by these two actors, like the look on Peter's face on, 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 um, on, mm-hmm. uh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Anyway, uh, I should look in my detectives in my character guide on the, on the thing here. <laughs> uh, I have a, too bad. There's not a website. Uh, Finn right. Bennett. Uh the, the man, the subtlety of the pain and the shame, the shame that he must be feeling in that moment to be remonstrated by his father in that way. And, and then the anger of like, F you, dude, I'm a man. I have a family. I have children. I have a job. I'm, you know, yeah, pillar and, of my community. And it's not his property to be stolen. Exactly. You, you can't tell me that I'm stealing from you when it's the property of the police department and I'm a police officer. It's it's madness. The gaslighting. I mean, it's it's gaslighting on an epic scale. Blood is blood. Yeah. Danvers isn't your blood. Oh man, it's he's, she's not. But that's like that's what good gaslighters do, right? Right. Use use a bit of the truth to obfuscate their nonsense. Yeah. So it sounds like their uh, Hank's uh, spouse and Peter's mother, uh, one and the same. There uh, obviously have uh, she left him with good reason. And like I mentioned before, he says pointedly, even your mother didn't steal from us when she left. Yeah. Was, was his mother maybe named Nadine? I'm not sure. <laughs> All right. Liz drops in on daddy Corsaro. You got and it. We <laughs> you, you'll get Corsaro and I'll get Liz by there the end of this podcast. <laughs> and we'll be good. 
it's part of our brand. It's part of the the Lorehounds brand that we we have one little stumble on each each show. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we get some interesting backstory on the relationship between Liz and Daddy Corsaro. <laughs> uh, I think it was actually a front story position. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> this Why felt me? gratuitous to me, but let me tell you something. Mm-hmm. And I told you this over chat, but I'm going to tell you on air now. Um, the and I didn't even get the right screenshot to show tell you in chat, so I'll tell you now too. Is I did not know it was Christopher Eccleston this whole time. I was expecting to see still, him because I still. knew I still I still at this moment did not know it was Christopher Eccleston, <laughs> and I I had heard you say he was in this episode, and I was like, okay, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And he does this stupid fucking grin. Well, he's. <laughs> doing it with Liz and he does this stupid grin with his big ears poking out and I'm like oh my god hello doctor Mm. (laughs) all of a sudden I realize that's the guy it's like seeing Santa naked or something like oh god no yeah it was shocking it was shocking I did not need this scene again I didn't didn't somebody say like I was a prude in in uh wheel of time or something no, did they? I, I don't remember that. And I, yeah, they, they, I think they basically said like, oh, it seems like you don't like sex scenes in science fiction fantasy. I think, first of all, this isn't that, but, uh, and I'm watching an HBO show, HBO show. I expect it to some extent. Right. But I honestly, I, I don't care if it's a sex scene. I just, it's an hour and two minute episode. And this sex scene did nothing to tell me anything about the characters. Really? I think I thought told so. me a lot. Okay. Okay. All right. But you like the sex scene but, in Foundation no, with, what, what uh, with Empire and um, the Because that told me things about the characters. And they mm-hmm. didn't have sex, by the way. No, they didn't. They never did uh, complete the act, did they? No. And, yeah. But that's my point. Is but like, it was an intimate relation. Anyway, but yeah. Sure. But like I could – it's not like they had a conversation or something leading up to it. It was just, oh, let me just show Christopher Eccleston doing a stupid grin and being yelled at um, for for a couple of minutes. And, and then y'all can – Y'all can just uh, deduce from that. It's like you didn't get anything out of that that you wouldn't have gotten about talking about it or showing the lead up or the afterward. I think Mm -hmm. that sex scenes should be reserved for when you need them to exposit something. Right. And I, I think there's a there's a conversation at large around the portrayal. And I'm not saying that you're saying this because I, I, I understand what you're box, how you're boxing this. And I'm sort of pulling back a little bit further and thinking about a larger conversation and wondering how this is going to play out because a lot of people had a lot of problems with the Navarro Kavik scene from episode one. And so now we've got Danvers and Eccleston here and the, the dynamics are, are different, but it's still a portrayal, a graphic portrayal, not graphic, but um, a, uh, a detailed portrayal. I don't know how to explain this. You know, we're getting in the act, and we're 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 seeing you know uh, a, a vision. We're, the camera is framed in such a way that we're it's not being suggestive; like it's very explicit what's going on. And it's and women and their sexuality and being you know uh, uh, a um, not just a passive role in it, but an active and. Uh, um, See any word that I'm that's coming to mind here, domineering or controlling or anything like that, all has sort of a negative uh, uh, tinge to it. But like, you know, no, I'm I'm not ready to be done yet, right? I, or I want something in this. There is something that I in, have my needs in this relationship and in this moment. Yeah, 
And I think no, I I didn't think there was anything. No, wrong I'm not saying you were. I'm not saying you were. I was. I was yeah. saying that I'm I'm talking about a, uh, something else. Which and yeah. I think we're not used to seeing that in our modern media. And so then when we do see it, it's a little bit confronting for people. And I thought that at least with um, Eccleston's acting, he certainly was acting the the part. <laughs> there seemed to be some realism there. And that's a real dynamic where one partner is not ready yet or has to catch up to the other partner. And the other partner is about to, you know, and once it's over, it's over, right? Mm-hmm. So it, to me, it felt like a very real scene and, a, and, and it goes into the power relationships and into these women characters who are agents in their own life, be it their careers or, you know, their sex or their relationships and being um, flawed in many ways in, in some of that, you know, like the way that Danvers treats other people in the community around her or her, her own so-called daughter. So I'm just pointing to this fact that this is just a, to me, explained a lot about Danvers's emotional state. She's using okay. sex All right. to solve her emotional wounds. She's carrying on a relationship that's gone on for 19 years, illicitly at times, right? When, when he was married and then she was with somebody else, even though that she was quote unquote on a break. So that tells, it told me a lot about her character. Okay. But I think I, I think what my point is, I have no problem using the fact that people had sex as a character development thing or even right. even the dynamic. I mean, just her showing up and then, you know, closing the door on it right away afterward. I think that tells you plenty of uh, of how she's treating this. Right. Is she's using right. this guy. Um, yeah. She's I using th- sex like drugs or alcohol or food or yeah. you know, some other. I think that my, my point with all this is that uh, for me. When yeah. there is a gratuitous sex scene, I think of this scene in Curb Your Enthusiasm uh-huh. where uh, they're trying to pitch a show and they have Julia Louise Dreyfus on there and she's saying, I want to be on HBO. I want to say fuck, you know, and it's just, <laughs> it's just very cringe for me. Right. And and it's supposed to be cringe on that show. And this feels like we're going to be on HBO. We're going to have a sex scene. Right. It's mm-hmm. just it's mm-hmm. just like, well, we can. So we will in mm-hmm. every episode. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right. OK. Can we move on to the plot? Mm-hmm. That's I that's mean, that's how it makes me feel. Got it. It's conf- yeah, and I can and for other people. I'm not saying this about you, but for for other people, I can see why this is confronting as well. Like it's a yeah yeah. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah yeah. No, I'm not saying you're you're not fine with it in that way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it is, and we drop right into the scene, <laughs> right? Like yeah. You know, it's a it's a vigorous scene. That, that they yeah, show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've tried to find soft words for it. <laughs> sure. Uh, anyway. Uh, a vigorous scene. A vigorous scene. It's uh, Christopher Eccleston grinning ear to ear. So he's, he's right. having a good time. Yeah. So, yeah. So we learn a bunch about their relationship, uh, about um, was she sent here or promoted to here? I, I don't think that I kind of have a feeling that maybe he promoted her like she, you know, she's ready for promotion. So I'm going to promote you. And it's an Ennis and that gets you away from that gets us away from each other because we've been going on, you know, this is the last time as they, you know, consistently say. Mm -hmm. So the question Mm -hmm. is, is whether this is before or after the death of her husband and son. 
or partner. You know, I, I shouldn't assume that they're married or not. Are they definitely the, dead? Or are they separated? That's an assumption. Yeah. I'm it just feels thinking. like it. It feels like it. it. And where the, I don't think they, maybe they weren't even married. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. So some assumptions there, but anyway, somebody that she was, you know, uh, obviously romantically involved in and potentially had a child with. Okay. Moving on back to at the station. She checks into Clark's credit history and finds the record of when Clark got his, got his tattoo and she calls the tattoo shop. So we get the photos of the tattoo on his chest. And then we get later on the reveal of the second photo, which is that Annie K had it on her back. Okay. So we got a clue drop uh, and the little setup for the uh, little tension to set up the end of the episode. Navarro arrives home to find Liz in her house. They agree to work the case together. And then we learn a little bit more about their history. I love this line. You want in or just want to go fuck yourself? <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. And uh, where do the cans go? Do they do they still go in the same place? Like, Dude, uh, so why is she asking that? I think they were roommates. That's what I think. Okay. I didn't know how far Liz and Navarro might have gone in their relationship. Uh, maybe that's just my my mind. No, I think they were roommates. I think I okay. think she got transferred to the police department. Uh-huh. Liz did. That's a that's a very that's a valid They were theory. roommates like and they it. hated each other so much that Liz moved out and uh <laughs> took her took her Leah with her, whatever right. she is to her, uh, and then transferred Navarro. Um, well, Leah, Leah belongs to, wait, did you say took Leah with her? I'm saying Liz took Leah with her. Yeah, no, I think, I think, hmm. No, cause Leah was whatever her partner's uh, daughter, right? So Leah and Navarro mm, yeah, aren't yeah. related. So yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I know. That's okay. why I said her, her Leah. Okay. With her. Got it. I see what you're saying. So a couple of clue details. Uh, he got his, his tattoo four days after she died and we've got confirmation that the tongue is Annie Kay's and that it has dun, 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 unusual cell damage. Ooh. So, and we know that Salal was working on some cellular, you know, micro stuff. Things stuff. to prevent cell damage, exactly. right? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So was that in the solution of <gasps> preservation? Interesting. Interesting. Maybe Did it he... resurrected. Uh, uh, I like it. What's her name? Uh, Annie K. Annie K. Resurrected Annie K from her tongue. Dude, she's awake. She's right? awake. Yeah. What if she's underground and awake because the the DNA fixer found her body underground and, and woke uh, her has up? Her. There you go. I like it. And they're gonna dig her up, and she's gonna yell just like the guy at the beginning of this episode. I'm going down the rabbit hole now. I gotta get out. <laughs> I gotta I get got out. Chills. That's I scary. Got one other little clue detail. Uh, Navarro mentions the Wheeler thing. We did what we needed to do. So some uh, more shared history, a little clue drop there for uh, another episode. All right. As Leah leaves from her rendezvous, she sees the lights from the ice rink. Peter watches a little TikTok and gets startled by Leah. Leah notices the welt on his face. We learn more about Hank, Liz, and Leah's dad. Flashback. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I tried to, there's so many flashbacks. Last last episode we had phone calls. This episode we've got flashbacks. That's our device in this episode. Fair enough. Is is the flash? Uh, you said the flashback is a thing. Is the phone call 
a big thing in True Detective. Yeah, yeah. You've 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 come up with a test, David. I think this is a good time for you to introduce. Okay. <laughs> I don't think the phone call is part of the test, uh, or at least a hallmark of this show. But uh, it's it's the season. It's certainly working. Um, but yeah, the test. So you know we have the shippy test, right? Mm-hmm. Which talks about the medium and the message. Did changes to the message of an original work. Um, how did those get reflected in the medium? So is it television or movie or whatever? And did the translation of that into the medium corrupt or obfuscate the original messaging? And this comes from Tom Shippey, and a, and a who's a famous Tolkien scholar and a, and a lecture that he had given. So right. we didn't make up the test, but we 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 put quotes around it, calling. But it it's the ours test. now. Yeah, nobody calls nobody else calls it the Shippey test except for us. No, they do. No, no, they don't say we, that. They don't say shippy test. They don't use that combination of words. Yes, they do. The Prince and no. Cody definitely does. You have to. Okay, you'll have to. I promise you. I don't want to. Okay. I don't want to say it. <laughs> I don't want to misattribute effect. it. Mandela effect. I never heard them say it. So. Uh, <laughs> well. There we I've go. Listened, anyway. I, I I used to listen to many hours of them, and I'm pretty sure they've they've said it, but. Okay. Uh, I think Marilyn will write in. No, she won't because she will never listen to this podcast because she's never going to watch the show. But well, uh, <laughs> we have the Marilyn Pukila test, who are our favorite Tolkien scholar, and that measures relative violence, like how how violent is an a episode or a season of television, uh, mm-hmm. sort of on a on a zero scale. Is Rings of Power that's sort of our zero point? Is that too violent? Is it more violent or less violent than that as a as a benchmark? And then we have the Sanderson slider, which uh, you told me about, which it sounds uh, Brian, delicious. It does. Right. It's a little serving of delicious food. Uh, I'm thinking more of a slider like in software application. No, I understand. I'm just yeah. making a joke. <laughs> and uh, makes me hungry now. Uh, the Sanderson slider is the uh, degree of adaptation versus inspiration. So if you take a particular piece of work. Are you adapting it and putting it directly on the screen as close as you can, or are you just taking inspiration from it and then just doing your own thing based on that inspiration? So I would like to propose to you a new test, and we can call it the Lopez test. And this is would be kind of a pass-fail, I think, and that it would measure the... Um, uh, uh, status of a show relative to its franchise. So if we say, did True Detective season four pass the True Detective uh, or the, the Lopez test? Does it have all the har- hallmarks that make it uh, associated with the True Detective brand? Fargo. Fargo season four, I would argue, fails the Lopez test. And that it it doesn't it does a lot of Fargoy things, but it doesn't rise. It, it's its own thing. I love season four. Don't get me wrong. Don't at me. Um, I love it, but I don't think of it as Fargo. Uh, certainly, Ahsoka is part of the Star Wars IP, right? Like that's an easy one, and or mm-hmm. like that that passes the the Lopez test. So it's this question of does a show fall within its stated category or IP brand? What do you think? Well, I like the test. I thought you were asking me what I thought of True Detective of the season. I was like, I have no idea. No, I've no, never no, watched no, the no. Show. I meant the, <laughs> the, the formulation of the test. No, I like it a lot. I, I'm, okay. I'm into it. Yeah, let's, okay. let's, let's stick with it. Okay, cool. So some True Detective hallmarks are unseen evil forces affecting our world and this whole struggle between light and dark. Uh, it principally centers its storytelling on two law enforcement officers, and they 
represent these guardians in some way uh, that keep the bad men out. I'm a bad man keeping other bad men out. That's uh, that's a line that's delivered in, in season one. Oh, no, we got to we now we have to bring in another Billie Eilish song. I'm the bad guy. I don't know yeah. that one. You don't know that one? No. Look it up. The, you never okay. tell me you didn't see all the memes like two years ago when that song was out and they had uh I'm I'm the bad guy, and then in the break before they did the dance, they would put like random sounds or quotes or people. Nope. Okay, it was a whole thing on TikTok. Okay. Anyway. Well, there you go. <laughs> no, you were Youth these it, days. This was pandemic talk. Everybody was on it. Oh no, anyway. I was not on on TikTok during the pandemic. Oh, see, that yeah. was your mistake. That was that go. was the sanity machine. Anyway, that's that's unrelated. You should listen to that song, and I think they should incorporate it uh, and do a montage of uh, <laughs> like Liz it. and Navarro. Right. But anyway, the, this idea that these these guardian figures, be they wherever they fall on a moral assessment, um, they make sacrifices to sort of keep the evil at bay. So when Peter says to Leah, you don't want to go close to the corpsicle, you don't want that kind of, you know, you don't want that on the back of your eyeballs when you're going to sleep at night. So he's, he's saying, I can go there and I'm absorbing this evil so that you don't have to. I can figure out why and what and what's going on here, so mm-hmm. that you can just remain safe and 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 what have you, and be you know, I, uh, it's just like this idea of a guardian type figure standing on this this threshold of the the light and the dark. And then I think I mentioned before about the personal lives being intertwined with the professional lives, and then these big exist. Another big hallmark is these sort of um, asking existential questions. Uh, and the past and memory, time is a flat circle, sort of all of these um, philosophical um, uh, 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 questioning of, you know, the nature of reality and the nature of memory and these kinds of things. So. Cool. So, so I would say that True Detective Season 4 Night Country definitely passes the Lopez test. I, I it sounds like no it from what reference. you've been telling me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, I, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Whatever you say, man, that's, that's yeah. where I'm at with it. Okay, well, let's keep going on here. So a um, uh, little clue thing here. This is all over the place. Uh, uh, on the wall of the ice rink, uh, Blue King uh, and a crab. And so that was the crab factory. And so everybody's like locking in on the fact that King, because we have the King in yellow from season one was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So now we have the Blue King. So people are all are cluing on that particular um uh, uh, logo and that's that's in, in a couple of, of scenes um and in the flashback oh i forgot to mention back in the the scene with uh uh i can't do it Caraso, Corasawa, Caras, daddy ted uh eccleston <laughs> okay uh, there's there's a bear on the wall uh, behind them on the um, uh, as they're uh, having relationships. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, and mm. then in the flashback uh, that happens in this scene, there's a bear on the wall uh, when um, Danvers and I don't know what this guy's name is, possibly Jake, but I don't know if that's Jake because Jake was mentioned before, but we don't know that's him. There's a bear on the wall there as well. So, mm. and. Uh, Leah's dad was a, a stoner and an artist and Hank's dad or Peter's dad was uh was a musician as well. Mm. So, cool. yeah. Have you seen those guys on TikTok on that TikTok video that he was watching? No, I don't think I have. I okay. didn't recognize it. 
I have seen those guys. When I was on TikTok, I have seen those guys. And uh, there's a whole cadre of of dance people. They're they're also on um, on uh, reels on Instagram reels. So I've seen them. Instagram reels. Now now you're showing your age. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Kovic is relaxing in the tub when Navarro pays him a visit, and she works out a major clue in the case, which leads her to the missing trailer. What did you make yeah. of the this scene and their their relate this furthering of their relationship? I do enjoy that um we're shown that Navarro's a competent detective, right? She's not just someone mm-hmm. who has, you know, a passion for solving the cases, but she actually does have the skills. And I did appreciate that. Right. And Kavik uh feeds her the line, if you don't have anything, she wouldn't want you, so you have it all. As he's, mm. you know, making uh, pancakes. What a supportive there. partner. Yeah, exactly. And and they're clearly they're, you know, they they have an ease with each other at some level, even though she steals his toothbrush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, right as Danvers reviews Clark's files, she gets a call from Navarro, and they investigate the trailer together. This is when the <laughs> this is when the booster rockets on this episode get lit, right? This yep. thing, this trailer thing. I, as a as a newbie to True Detective, what talk to me a little bit about your experience of this scene? Yeah, this was where I was like, okay, yeah. So this is a weird show. This is not this is not just your average procedural here. Pro- procedural. Do you know that uh, Brandon like loved that so much? Brandon, uh, Brandon, the bard heard you oh, say really? procedural and he sent us a message while we were recording admiring <laughs> it. He said, excellent. He's just listening to the 10. episode. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. He's having a great time. So, yeah. So crazy stuff, right? Yeah, it was crazy. And and I was like, I didn't know the show could do that. Right. So season one does this with in, in, in a few instances where you're just like, whoa, what planet did I just show up on? Like I was sitting here on my couch yep. and now I'm like, I'm in Carcosa or something, which is this weird evil city. Um, did you, any particular clues or anything? I mean, obviously I've got all the notes here, but d- is there anything in particular that, that stood out on you minus my notes? Like the, you know, without me leading the witness as it were. Not, not really. Honestly, it was uh, it, like, obviously there's bear stuff going on, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to follow this scene. Okay. So obviously, oh, where did we have? Oh, you know what I, I did? Oh yeah, here we go. We forgot. Um, uh, not only the trailer, I, we got to back up half a step back was because when Liz is looking through uh, Clark's notebooks, he we start to get into that, all that crazy writing. Right. And all his crazy doodles. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So right in the eyes and she's awake and her eyes and, and all these sort of spiral designs and stuff. So we get that tension ramp up and then we get the phone call and then we go to the trailer. Um, and so, yeah, it just sort of all serves as a, as a piece. Um, the, there's a little bear figure next to the phone. When she picks up Lee, um, Annie Kay's phone, there's a stuffed bear in the corner. All of these things are just like right there in the shot. So, so more, um, weird bear iconography. Um, there is the obvious spiral on the ceiling. And when she looks up at the spiral, we get this weird space music, like, 
it almost feels like the spiral is going to come alive. Right. And that also kind of calls back to a scene, which I'm not going to describe, but from season one where we get this like, like, Whoa, like are are the walls of reality here breaking down, you know, between us and some other place. It's the maze from Westworld. Absolutely. (laughs) And the other thing I want to point out is that all of the pictures on the wall above that weird bed, you know, uh, with a weird, uh, I don't know what we want to call that body, that sort of constructed body. All of the pictures up on the wall are not, there's a few pictures of what I, I think there are a few pictures of Annie Kay, but there are, are a lot of other pictures of a very white skinned woman with red hair. Yeah. And they're all over. So, yeah. Um, this is a spooky guy we're dealing with. Yeah. Spooky, spooky guy. So I've got a lot of pictures. I took a lot of screen grabs of those and I'll put those all in the detective notebook. So if you want to go back later and um, see all that stuff, it'll be ready by the time the episode airs. Uh, but uh, I've got uh, freeze frames of of all of these different clues and these little bear things and pictures of the wall and stuff like that. So cool. if you are interested. Yeah. All right. Young, young prior calls in and we learn that there are only six bodies in the corpsicle. We've got G, Marins, Molina, Katov, Meta, and Emerson. And we have Clark and Lund are missing. And then Seven Devils by Florence and the Machine kicks in. Mm. That is the episode. That's a lot. A lot going that on That was in this a episode. lot. Yeah, I know. We're at two hours and five minutes, and we just finished <laughs> the episode, and we got feedback. And I've got so many, there's so many little things that I skipped too, just for the sake of time, right? You know, I know we, we, you gotta at some point cut yourself off, right? Exactly. Less is more sometimes. Less is more. With Charmin Ultra. (laughs) We're not sponsored. I wish we were. No, you know what I'm talking about though, right? The, the commercial. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. We're we're not sponsored by that. Oh yeah. We're not, we're not, we're not sponsored, but I, I, you know, I gotta say there's some jingles that are just so effective. Oh yeah. That it just stays in your head forever. And it's Charmin Ultra, less is more. That's my always going to be in my head. He has a first name. It's. Uh, yeah. no, no, no. And both yeah. of those, they've abandoned. Uh huh. You don't hear those anymore, but they're always no. in my head. I think we don't get just stick with it. Just don't, yeah. don't break it. All right. Well, should we take a quick break? No, we because we already into- did two breaks. Okay. So we're going to roll straight into feedback. We're going to roll straight into feedback. All Leave right, it let's, in. Let's bring it around. <laughs> let's bring it to a close. First up, Loremaster Bettina W. sent us a message via the Patreon messaging system. Hey, guys. Great to have you back covering a really big prestige show. Loved your podcast for a pretty good first episode of True Detective Season 4. Although I've seen all the previous seasons, I'm with John. At some point during this episode, I felt kind of lost, too. I think this is the first time ever that I was wondering if a show was doing too much world building. Hmm. Little hmm face emoji. Mm. But I'm willing to trust that it's going to pay off and I'm totally on board for the ride. Uh, Then she goes on. So, yeah. So that's that's uh, other folks. I think we're feeling the same on ramp uh, uh, ramp up. I I certainly was. Yeah. Yeah. That was my biggest complaint with the first episode. And I think it's largely been resolved in episode two. So I'm I'm going to say I'm much more positive on episode two and I'm looking forward to the rest of the season now. Right. All right. She says, uh, David, I can't believe how much you work you're putting into this coverage, but I love it. Yeah, it's I'm having (laughs) fun. I can't believe it either. I, I you showed me the detective notebook, David, and I said, if you really want to do this, 
I'm not going to stop you, <laughs> but my God, you're putting a lot of work into this. I'll tell you what it is. The detective uh, notebook works. It's my process. And I've been wanting mm-hmm. to do this. I remember back in Andor, I was like, God, I got to keep track of these characters and stuff like that. And there was like, I had a desire to do this. This was already sort of a creative vision within me. So this is just me getting to do that. And it's as part of my process, I get to capture these clues and then put them into a framework and and have them accessible. Then I thought, well, well why not share this? And And I've been having fun balancing visual information versus like h- how how could you just see something really quickly and go oh okay i get it right like that that visual communication style stuff and using this platform this notion platform to balance all of that has been actually a, a really fun creative endeavor for me i think you have fully developed into the charlie day meme where he's <laughs> he has all the red String up and yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. He has all the papers on the wall. I think that's what's the other right one now. with all the math symbols swirling by? Yeah, yeah, that's I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But no, I th- no that person's confused. Charlie Day, he knew exactly what he, he was talking exactly about. Was Got and it. I think I think that's you right now. Got it. Uh, anyway, can't believe how much your work you're putting into this coverage, but love it. Thanks so much for that. Not to miss out on all the Easter eggs and callbacks. I'm going to do a rewatch of season one before episode two airs. Wow, a whole rewatch. Ten episodes. I mean, not not that I've not done something of that volume too many times, but <laughs> I mean, I, it's coming from the guy who like binged all of twenty years of Doctor Who to cover the anniversary specials, but or Star Wars, all the anime, or Star Wars, yeah. yeah. So I, you know what, I support this. I can't say right. anything about this. I support We're the this, Patina. This is what we do. Uh, she concludes finally. Just one little ask. I'm wondering if you could shorten your intro housekeeping pregame talk just a bit. I've noticed. For some time now that this part keeps getting longer and longer, but that's really just a very, very, very minor critique. Overall, still absolutely loving what you do. Thanks again. Have a lovely week, Bettina. Thank you, Bettina, for being a lore master. And thank you for being um, part of the community, just somebody who's willing to write in and share your thoughts, and, and yeah. especially the, the critique, because we take that very seriously. And we actually yeah. tried to work to shorten it down a little bit even today. So. It's a it's a good note because that's something that David, you and I talk about once every couple of months. Where like, mm-hmm. man, because you know what it is? It's like every time we do something interesting or we have an affiliate do something interesting, we're like, hey, we should mention this in the intro, and then it just gets tacked on, attacked on, right. tacked on until the right. until we have to go. Okay, where were we at two months ago, and how do we get back there? Right. And then for this for episode one, we didn't do a pregame podcast, so all of that background on the season and our personal histories with it and the, our plans and stuff, all of that got front loaded into episode one as well. Like we could have done a 15 or 20 minute pod on that just as a standalone to prep everybody for what was coming. So that's a good reminder when we have big marquee shows to to do that and not load yeah. the first episode. Yeah. You know. But tis the busy season, as it they is. say. All right, I'm taking over now. Nicole B left a message on our Patreon post and said, Regarding Leah's age, when Liz gets the call from the other mom, she states that the girlfriend Sherry is in Leah's class. So I would assume Leah is still in high school, but maybe it's a small combined school and Leah is within a couple of years of age. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I think they're either in the same grade or two or one grade apart. I think that's that's perfectly fine. I just don't know why they had to phrase it that way. It was very strange. But uh, good catch. Good catch. So maybe it was resolved and we were just speculating on something stupid from the first episode. <laughs> and we got we got confirmation this episode that she is 17. So and that her girlfriend yep. is a uh, this isn't Leah predating on somebody. This is a, a very mutual relationship. 
these yep. two young young folks are are uh, uh, very much into each other. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, Lore Master Peter Oh on the Discord says David mentioned the show The Terror on the podcast on account of the polar bear connection. In addition, indigenous people missing their tongues is another shared feature between these two shows. Yeah, I had forgot about that. That's a good call, Peter. Uh, there's definitely some tongue-related things in that show. Did you ever watch The Terror? No, I've, was, I don't. I don't think I've heard of it. Okay, it was going to be another anthology series um, where each season was going to be a story from you know the mists of time, from the annals of of lost history. And the first one had Jared Harris and Tobias Mendez. And it was about a ship that uh, gets trapped in the ice, uh, an old wooden sailing ship, you know, like a neck. I believe they were exploring or something. And then all kinds of bad stuff happens because they're jerks and they, uh, you know, do jerky things. And so terror happens involving a polar bear. So really good. Hmm. Second season was I didn't ever watch the second season and it got really bad reviews. And then I'm not sure where the franchise went away. But it would be a a, a Fargo-y kind of thing, but for horror, terror-related stuff. So it was a good idea. But okay. it seems like uh, season two, um, um, uh, they pulled the plug on the idea afterwards. So we'll It see sounds like back. from Wikipedia, in January 2020, they said they're considering a third season. So I guess that that didn't happen. <laughs> I guess Not that yet. didn't happen. Also, uh, if you didn't know, a few things happened in the world after that that made TV production pretty hard. Exactly. So maybe they just shelved it. So yeah, I think we'll it just it died in back. the in the COVID purge. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, Peter Oh for writing in. And he's and also a uh, lore master. I I know I introduced yeah. him as a lore master. You did, I, you I did. used the sir title as the <laughs> <laughs> sir, <laughs> sir, sir Peter Oh. Well, sir C Drive, our old friend sent in a Word doc with a ton of great research that covers some of the inspiration for the show and also putting down some serious internet points on a working theory about what's happening. So here we go. Issa Lopez says she was inspired by the Dyatlov incident and Mary Celeste incident. Dyatlov Pass. I've watched a TV documentary about this before, so I knew about this. The team at Dyatlov Pass burst out of their tents and hauled ass running in the snow, seemingly horrified by something. It reminded me of how the Salal team was frozen in a state of horror. All right. I, I buy that. Yeah. It's a, one of those mysteries where they're they're like, okay, we found the bodies, but we don't know how this, you know, we don't, we're not asking the right questions and they never figured out what exactly went down. There they didn't some, have Liz Danvers asking the right that's questions. Right. There is some also great uh, commentary by Issa Lopez in different interviews and stuff where this is a ghost. You know, the Salal Research Station itself is that ghost ship. It is the um, the Nostromo from the first Aliens movie, you know, this giant, you know, thing moving mm-hmm. through space, whatever. This is the all of those genres. She's very cognizantly... Uh, bringing all of those together right. into this this thing, using those as inspiration. Cool. Sea uh, Drive continues with Mary Celeste, says, never knew anything about this, so went down a rabbit hole, found abandoned sailing aimlessly off the coast of Azores Island. The Azores. Yeah, the, the Azores, Azores Island uh, in December with three feet of water sloshing in its hold. No signs of fire or violence, but an orderly departure using the ship's lifeboat. 
left all the food or ample provisions remained at least. Uh, it reminded me of how Salal team left with sandwiches and open beer still out. Yeah, that's yeah. a good call. That's yeah. a good call, too. I love these connections here. Yeah. Uh, next up is Prions. I don't know what this is, but about, there's a Wikipedia entry. Thank you. Yeah, I, I pasted a little bit of oh, you thing. Put, so you you can, put it in. Yeah. So you can kind uh, of uh, summarize this a little bit. Okay. Um, well, I haven't read it before, so I'm not going to summarize it. I'm just okay. Read. Well, a prion um, is a <laughs> misfolded protein that can induce other misfoldings of normal variants of the same protein and oh, trigger okay. cellular death. Uh, prions cause prion diseases known as transmissible spongiform encephalitis that are transmissible, fatal neurodegenerative diseases in humans and animals. Next week on The Last of Us. All right. Reddit poster screenshotted the uh, scientist bio for Lucas Marins. Uh, I knew someone would do this. From there, they go to metalloproteins and then draw a line to prions. The prion talk includes how contamination can be through eating. It can be through eating contaminated meat. Okay. So when and they were eating meat sandwiches, right? Right. So when um, uh, Peter is going through the bios, uh, you can screenshot and there's written bios for all of these different people. And so for Lucas Marins in the, um, in his bio, it talks uh, about the research that he did or uh, in the past, like who this guy is. And so mm -hmm. that's where they're pulling this stuff up. Some people are reading these and pulling the clues out. Yeah. All right. So uh, continue. C-Drive continues. As a deer hunter, I know there's a chance to eat bad meat. Prion disease is called chronic wasting disease, and it causes lesions in the brain. Also known as zombie deer disease, in all caps, we have an indigenous caribou hunter in the show. Mm. Mm, right. Yeah. But they don't go out to buy groceries. So who's bringing it in? Is it is it one of the workers from the fish plant? Well, this is where some of these theories are going. Is like, it, what is is there something going on with uh, the the mine? Is there something going on with the research station? Did it get out into into the populations of animals, fish, into the caribou, right, right. et cetera, et cetera? Symptoms include behavioral changes, mood changes, and dementia. So again, the scientist acting weird and saying weird shit. Maybe the shadow figure or any hallucination from dementia. Yeah, yeah, I'm liking this a lot because yeah. we now even you, you, C Drive had not seen this current episode before Correct. writing this, and there's even more stuff telling us that Clark was acting weird. Exactly. Uh, lastly, C-Drive writes about recent events and shows. The Last of Us had an ancient pathogen, of course. Although I, I wouldn't call that an ancient pathogen. That's just something out of nature, right? Yeah, that's, that's just, a normal, uh, that it, that evolved. Yeah, it was a fungus yeah. that evolved. Yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, fung, fung, fungi, fungi, fungi. Well, anyway. You're a fun guy. Uh, that's what the girl mushroom said to the guy mushroom. All right, it's getting late. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting bungee. We're getting bungee. All right. During the coronavirus pandemic, scientists started talking about how glacial melt could unlock ancient viruses. Yeah. There you go. Scary. The Salal core samples, ice samples are used by climatologists to study ancient weather and climate conditions. Also, soil samples, like if a volcano erupted ash, etc. I know as a past petroleum engineering student taking geology sedimentary rock courses. 
uh, and dealing with soil core samples in the laboratory is just like these ice core samples. That's interesting. I, I, yeah. I, that's, that's cool. I wonder if that's part of their research here. A scientist reading the data on the whiteboard seems to be, it seems to reach a scary conclusion and circles data and puts exclamation marks. Then apparently writes, we are all dead. The data seems to be from the ice samples because the columns are date and depth time as it relates to core depth. It's like they are, they're literally reading back in time and time is a flat circle and bad things will happen again and again and again. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Yeah. So good working theory here that C drive has and then this prion stuff and uh, yeah, absolutely uh, things to keep an eye on. And I think this is a true detective thing too, where there's a mundane thing. Yeah. There's just a, a killer in the closet with a knife. And then there's this weird cosmic supernatural weird fiction thing over the top that, so you can, depending on what your point of view is, is that you can, you can see that killer in the closet is being inspired by, you know, the ancient evil that lives in, in other places. Um, so this could be a very mundane, straightforward, you know, thing is, is the mind doing something or is Salal doing something and did Salal do something that then released something, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's cool. Yeah. Good theories. It's cool. Um, All right. Again, true detective at the lorehounds.com or, you know, on our Patreon or on our discord, send us messages. I would love to put out a call to to anyone who has lived or worked or spent any significant time in the Arctic Circle or even in the Antarctic. You know, let us know what you know things are really like uh, out there. I know we have some um, uh, Nordic uh, country listeners. I'm not sure how Alaska fares on our our thing, but yeah, anyone who's up in the that region where. Um, the time variance of the sun rising and setting uh, alters, you know, human behavior significantly. It would be really interesting to hear some points of view about that. Yeah, that would be very cool. Okay. Well, let's wrap it up, I guess, huh? <laughs> I think so. I think we're, we're, we're done cooking here. Yeah, we are. We are cooked. I am cooked. Um, let's just uh, blow past a, a lot of our uh, outro stuff. Uh, probably Howard movie review are on a little break, but as soon as severance is up, uh, for season two, we're going to be, the four of us are going to be covering that. And Alicia is, um, busy trying to get beacon 23 wrapped up and doing some stuff for Dune and some other things she's prepping. Um, shout out to the Lorehounds, or do we want to talk a little bit about our upcoming schedule? Let's, uh, let's do the upcoming schedule first. Okay. You want to lead off? Sure. Uh, we are doing a lot of stuff coming up. We, uh, I know that you're going to be talking about Masters of the Air, I think, with Brandon now. We got him screener, yep. so uh, yep. we're, you two are going to do that because I am not that interested in that series, to be honest. <laughs> it's just not my thing. I, yeah. I think it'll be yeah. good, but it's not my thing. Um, we, uh, Brandon and I are going to be covering uh Final Fantasy 7 remake which is a really great game and they're coming out with a sequel with it for it next month. Uh I know that the 7 seems intimidating if you don't know the series. It's an anthology series just like True Detective. So you don't have to play the other like 15 entries. You can just play the one. Um it's really good. Anyway, um we're also of course doing True Detective every week. We are about to do a Fargo episode. If you like this show, you'll definitely like Fargo, I think. And yeah, we just uh, wrapped up uh, season five, just ended. Um, yep. So 
We got the usual Silmarillion stories. Earthsea's coming back in February and uh, plenty of stuff down the line coming. Rogue One. Rogue One. Yeah. Live watch uh, this weekend. Well, yeah. it would have already happened by the it time it comes happened. out. So uh, the, there'll, be, there'll be a podcast out. There'll yeah. T- yeah, time's a flat circle. Great. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell me about our lore masters, David. Samartian, Mark H., Michael G., Michelle E., David W., Brian P., Nick W., SC, Peter O.H., Bettina W., Adam S., Nancy M., Doof 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H., Sarah L., Gareth C., Eric F., Matthew M., Sarah M., DJ Miwa, Andra B., Kwong Yu, Deadeye Jedi Bob, Nathan T., Alex V., Aaron T., Sub-Zero, Aaron K., Dally V21, and never last, wait, always last but never least, Adrian. Um, thank you all so much. They are our lore masters, our top tier patrons who help really keep our, um, podcast wheels on the car and make sure that we have a healthy podcasting community and to all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you so very much. We could not do this. We cannot do these late night recordings where we're like stumbling over ourselves to wrap up without you. So thank you. We dearly appreciate it. Very much so. David, it's been a pleasure. I think uh, we will definitely be talking for a similar length of time next week because this show <laughs> has a lot to go into. And from what I saw on the next on from last week, uh, oh, I forgot to plug one thing too, where we kind of have a live chat thing happening on our Discord. So if you can second screen, if you're into the second screen thing and you want to like, you know, oogle and ogle at the episode as it's live uh, showing. We have a channel set up in our Discord for that. So I'll be there next week. But from what I saw in the next week on, they got a lot yet planned for us. So it's going to be a wild ride. All right, David, I will see you next week. Good night. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away in timeline order from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.